Hey everybody, this month's episode of the Rado Talk Super Podcast is brought to you by Elf Creek Games. And hello everybody, how are you doing? Uh, we've got a big episode for you this month. I think about three and a half hours. Even though there weren't that many more questions than normal. Well, uh... I got a bit ranty here and there, as I sometimes do. A bit uh, loquacious, a bit pontificatious, and I apologize in advance. But hopefully, you will have a good time hearing what we've got to say. And of course, as always, folks, this is just the beginning. This is a two-way street. I'm going to need more questions uh, sooner than later. So if anything pops into your mind when you're listening to this, or just in general about games or life, the universe, and everything, please send those questions to questions at rotto.com. And otherwise, I think we're ready to get to it. First, there'll be the game stuff, as always. And Jen will join me for a few more game stuff, and then it'll be all personal to round it out. So, without further ado, let's get to it. Okay, everybody, let's get to those game questions. Ben asks, in the latest podcast, I was asked about what the industry does well and what they don't do well. And I talked about how well publishers have done with the production quality and players are now spoiled, uh, but maybe to the detriment of the hobby overall. I was curious if you wanted to expand on that thought. Honestly, I don't really remember specifically what I said, but I see you have a lot more here, Ben. So let's keep uh, talking and maybe you'll help me jog my memory. You're inclined to agree with me, but wonder if we agree for the same reasons. It seems that the increased production quality almost always leads to higher costs, which may lead to increased barriers to entry for new uh, players as well as players wanting to expand their collections. Theoretically, if you're in a position where you... uh, He's talking to me. uh, or Theoretically, if I were in a position... Uh, to have to buy my games out of pocket. I, I do buy games out of pocket. I just bought, um, what what did I just buy? Uh, the uh, El Burro, the sequel to La Granja. But anyway, yes, uh, you know, so occasionally. But theoretically, if I had to buy the majority or all of my games out of pocket, fair enough. Would I rather be able to get cheaper Ravensburger copies of the Castles of Burgundy, Notre Dame, and the Air Dragon, Carpe Diem, etc., or just the basic deluxe Burgundy? The math is a bit fuzzy, but I think it's in the ballpark of being uh, comparable. And then in addition... Okay, that's uh, we'll come back in a second. Well, okay, that's a very specific question, and for me, it is a no-brainer. Uh, if, I mean, well... If, if you want to talk about the Deluxe Burgundy versus, or, you know, what's it called? Burgundy Special Edition versus Anniversary Burgundy. Uh, yeah, it'd be uh, the Special Edition. No two ways about it. Uh, first of all, okay, well, let's, let's take a step back and, uh, you know, talk about stuff here. Talk about how um, increased production quality is leading to overall increased cost of games. I don't believe that's true. I believe the overall cost of games is increasing because everything over time, with very, very few exceptions, gets more expensive over time. It costs more to go to the movies now than it did when I was a kid. It costs more to buy dog food now than it did 10 years ago. And board game prices going up are the norm as well. Yes, there are certainly board game publishers who push the boundary of what can go into our beloved boxes full of cardboard. And when a new concept comes along, right, and uh, you know somebody really wants to take things to the next level, <clears throat> and they talk to their manufacturing partners, their manufacturing partners will say, oh, we've never done anything like that before. Yeah, I guess we could do it, but it's going to cost extra. And so, yeah, that game... Uh, chances are, 
Well, actually, in some cases, the uh, cost will be borne out by, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, a higher cost. And, you know, and on the retail shelves, but generally speaking, no, the cost is uh, you know comes out of the potential profit the publisher can make because these things come about because of successful Kickstarter campaigns. That the Kickstarter campaign, um, what do you call them, stretch goals, trying to get more and more and more, uh, inevitably often leads to component upgrades, and so those component upgrades are paid for, uh, you know, out of the pocket of the initial. Uh, you know, uh, uh, backer enthusiasm for it, right? I mean, the reality is, let's, uh, like, these days, dual-layer player boards are almost becoming common. You know, five years, ten years ago, they literally didn't exist. Five years ago, they were very rare, and now they're, 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 they're... almost getting to the point where they're kind of expected. They're still a little deluxe, but not super deluxe. And here's the deal. Five years ago, when publishers were trying to do it, uh, and the man- and, uh, the manufacturer was saying, well, geez, we're going to have to come up with a new pipeline on our assembly line to do that. It costs more. Now, because they've done it so much, the costs have come down. Uh, silk screening on meeples. Ten years ago, never heard of. These days, you'll find it on lots of games, even smaller little games that don't cost very much. Uh, it's becoming more and more common because the more it's done, the more volume there is, the lower the price comes down because manufacturers uh, can work that into their flow instead of having to develop completely new things. So, no, I think the addition of silk screening on meeples and dual layer boards and um, you know custom engraved fancy dice instead of just regular dice, those things are not driving up the baseline costs of board games in an appreciable way. Yes, there will be spikes here and there for a game that you know pushes some new uh, you know avenue. But for the most part, the thing that's driving up the cost of games is the thing that's driving up the cost of dog food. Uh, this is fresh in my mind because one of my neighbors was just complaining about how, you know, three years ago, they're, uh, I mean, she's having a hard time feeding her dogs because she used the, the cans of dog food being 90 cents and now they're $2 and that's really tough for her. Uh, yeah, costs are going up everywhere. Uh, you know, for the last few years, they have been going up exceptionally fast because of worldwide events. And of course, that has affected the board game industry as well. That has afforded, that, that has affected going out to dinner. Going out to dinner. Uh, Jen and I went out to dinner last night because we were doing a thing and we were out and um, you know we were reminded how, man, this meal five years ago would have been incredibly cheap compared to where it is now. So, I mean, that's the real underlying culprit of the rising cost of board games. Just the fundamental nature of supply and demand in the on the world stage. At least, that's my opinion. Yes, there will be cases where uh, a specific game might be overpriced, uh, but you, but those are, I think, the exceptions to the rules, and those are usually things that come up with something completely new that nobody has ever done before. But even then, um, you know, when uh, you know developers are coming up, like uh, the, uh, like let's see, let's check this. Um, is my shelfie available yet? Amazon, my shelfie, because my shelfie is a game that just. Pretty much never existed before. Uh, you know, it's existed forever, uh, and, you know, in the form of, uh, you know, Connect Four. I mean, it was available when I was a kid in the seventies. My shelfie uh, on Miniature Market is uh, thirty-two bucks, and that is for a game with with four little Connect Four, uh, you know, really cool, fancy, deluxe components. Um, you know, four Connect Four boards in one box, and yet they're keeping the price at around thirty-two bucks. Now, that's not suggested retail. Suggested retail is thirty-nine, but even that. Um, seems to me to be perfectly reasonable. So, yeah, I think... 
Um, you know, I, 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 it, it does kind of bother me that it, you know most board game fans do not value. At least it appears to me that they do not value the um, the sweat equity that goes into these games. Often board games will cost more because the publisher wants to um, fairly pay the designer and the artist and the editor and everybody else who worked on the game. Uh, they'd like these people to be able to make a living wage and not have board game design be something that still to this day the majority of board game designers do on the side because they couldn't afford to make a living out of it. Uh, you know, if they produce regu- you know, regularly fantastic board game designs, why shouldn't they be able to make a living out of it? Well, that's going to be reflected in the cost. I mean, I remember years ago that um, Vito Lasarda mentioned to me in passing when we met at a convention how happy he was working for Eagle Griffin because uh, Eagle Griffin's... Yes, Vito Lasarda games from Eagle Griffin cost a lot more than they did from What's Your Game. And yes, they are much more lavish and deluxe, but and, and they are all more expensive than what they used to be. But it's not just the lavishness that drove up the price. It's the fact that Vita Lasarda is getting a living wage now out of his games, and Ian O'Toole. Um, it is the cost that you're getting a lot more. Games can be more ambitious and put more stuff in the box, creating more variety and replayability out of games. Uh, because, you know, uh, de- developers and publishers aren't necessarily uh, right. Well, okay, well, you know, geez, as soon as we have more than 52 cards, that triples our cost. Um, because you know, 52 is a standard size, you know, format that we can get from the publisher. But these days, yeah, what the heck? Let's have a 62 uh, card deck because um, you know the um, the manufacturers have er- have developed lots more ways to be lots more flexible because there's just more stuff happening now. Really, at the end of the day, uh, the thing that drives up the cost of Vita Lasarda games that you could buy today, as opposed to eight years ago, as much as anything else, is. Just the overall cost of goods in our modern-day world. I I think it's very, very easy to just say, Oh, fancy stuff. The more fancy stuff we get, the cheaper it is to put fancy stuff in the box, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So I don't know that I necessarily agree that I'm seeing what we used to call deluxification just becoming more and more standard, just higher quality production across the board. I don't think um, that is what's driving up the cost of things, or at least the primary driver. Anyway, oh, I'm sorry. And then back to your actual question. Right. Uh, No, I would much rather have the uh, special edition. Not because it's got prettier dice and you know um, dual layer boards and all of that stuff. I want it because it has more content in the box. There are two completely new excellent expansions, the Vineyards and the Shotoma, that have never existed before. You can't get them in the earlier versions of the game. And if the earlier version, if the uh, if regular 30 bucks uh, Castles of Burgundy included a decade's worth of expansion content, um, plus two completely new, very ambitious expansions with a whole bunch of new physical components to make these things work. Um, you know what? The original Ravensburger version would cost. Well, I mean, actually, if you wanted to buy every single one of these things independently of each other, the original Ravensburger plus all the little standalones that come over the years would cost more than the new special edition. But 
thanks to economies of scale, because um, you know, uh, maybe because Awakened Realms, uh, thanks to the success of Kickstarter, was able to put in a really, really big order for this all at once, so that the bigger an order they make, the um, cheaper it costs for them to produce. That's just standard manufacturing practice, and it always has been. Um, that means they can afford to give you a bigger, more robust experience that will provide more long-term legs. Special Edition Burgundy is miles superior to Anniversary uh, Burgundy or regular Burgundy because for a little bit more money, you get significantly more gameplay. Now, you could counter-argue, and it would be totally valid, that, hey, Burgundy is perfect as it is. It doesn't need significantly more gameplay. And yeah, I mean, honestly, I had Burgundy for 10 years and never once thought, man, I really wish I had three times the gameplay in this game for twice the cost or for actually for less than what all that gameplay would cost if I bought them independently. But don't, make no mistake, over the years, I have slowly but surely, for my original $30 copy of Burgundy, been buying every single one of those promos and mini expansions that come out. I have paid more for my original Burgundy than I ever would for the special edition because the special edition benefits from, um, you know, um, you know, increased uh, you know uh, increased value due to increased economy of scale, uh, and for um, you know cheaper manufacturing practices as more and more of these things become regular. I'm sorry, I feel like I'm all over the place, but hopefully that kind of makes sense. So yeah, to me, it's a no-brainer. Um, you know, pay 120 bucks slowly over the course of many years to get all these things, and I can't even get all that stuff. Or just pay 100 bucks and get a much higher quality version of the game with more stuff in the box to begin with. To me, that's a no-brainer. Um, but if I recall correctly, you, uh, you were saying it is an increased barrier for entry to new players. So that's the other problem because yes, it is easier certainly to buy a $30 copy of Burgundy of bare bones basic Burgundy than it would be to buy the $100 copy. And my response to that is if you're somebody who's just thinking about the hobby, there are plenty of affordable games. Go get my shelfie instead. I just mentioned it. Um, you know, there are plenty of games that are. In fact, the vast majority of games coming out today are not super over-the-top productions in gigantic shelf-busting um, boxes. The vast majority of games that are still coming out are reasonably priced and have only gone up in price even you know because of increase in cost of goods even though the quality I mean the quality of you know a top end euro game 10 years ago compared to a top end euro game today is night and day different and yes the standard price you're going to pay is 10 or 15 bucks more but that's not because of the increase in quality it's because of the increase of cost of goods it's because of inflation that's my opinion but anyway you weren't done Ben we're going to continue in addition do I think the extra efforts towards production quality could end up detracting from the quality of gameplay? Uh, ben continues, saying he knows uh, he, he knows that would be. Ben says, I know that would be much more difficult to objectively evaluate, but just curious if, if um, you, I, I got to stop switching pronouns here. Uh, ben is more curious if I've noticed anything to that effect. Uh, more recently, you know, for the for the stuff that I cover on the channel, I wouldn't say so, um, because <laughs> designers and artists don't um, 
you know, you know, their cost is a fixed cost, regardless of whether you have silk screen meeples, regardless of whether you have dual layer boards, regardless of whether you have custom dice or, um, you know, just, uh, you know, standard, uh, uh, you know, uh, D6 dice, regardless of whether you have tarot size cards or just regular cards. Um, no, I, I, I don't think that is the case. If, uh, if anything, I mean, I do think the industry is, you know, more and more you're hearing about how, you know, designers, and I, I've talked a lot to designers about, you know, their goals and hopes to become a full-time designer and how they just have to do it on the weekends and whatnot, and they can't quit their day job. And I've, talk, I've never talked to artists about this very much, so I can't really speak to that. But I, I can certainly speak to the fact that designers probably across the board are being better compensated now than they ever have been in the past. They're getting a higher percentage of sales royalties if they got a hit on their hands. They're getting, uh, you know, uh, you know, better downs on what they're putting out there. I believe that is the case. Now, I am not working day to day. This is anecdotal at best. As you say, it's kind of difficult for me to objectively state this is the fact. But in my anecdotal um, talkings to people, that certainly seems to be the case. It's certainly not the case that a uh, that uh, you know a, a top line designer can still be a board game designer. That is still there. You know, it used to be there were a dozen people in the world that could make their living on board game design. Now. Maybe there's a few hundred. That's still a step in the right direction, I think. And in part, it's a reflection of the fact that the industry itself is getting bigger. That um, sales projections are a little bit more, uh, what do you call it, um, reliable or predictable. And most importantly, it's also because of the guarantees publishers get thanks to crowdfunding platforms. I know crowdfunding platforms amongst the hardcore board game elite are something to be looked down upon, but crowdfunding platforms help the publishers, help designers make better games more often because it takes a lot of the risk out. And I think this is, these are all net positives across the board. I am assuming everything I'm saying is true for artists as well, but I don't know that for a fact. I know when the Miko or the Micho first started, he was, uh, you know, charging, you know, nothing. And now he can actually command decent prices and, you know, and make a good amount of money off of his art. I think that's great. I want to continue to see that happening uh, as the board game industry continues to uh, grow. Uh, anyway, la- let's see. Hopefully that answered that question. Lastly, it seems like we've been, we've maybe seen the end of the dusty old J-A-S-E. Uh, for folks who don't know, that is an old school term, just another soulless Euro, a Jace. That's what certain board game fans like to call Castles of Burgundy back in the day. Oh, that's a Jace, just another, uh, just another soulless Euro. Um, but anyway, uh, you're describing it pretty cheaply made, i.e. affordable, but perfectly functional and still usually really fun, like the aforementioned Ravensburger Felds, Queen games like Kingdom Builder and Fresco. Uh, I'm sure plenty of older Rio Ground games and Lookout games. That's interesting. Um, I don't... I mean, it, again, that comes back to what I said earlier. I don't know that they were more cheaply made back in the day. I believe back in the day, those games were using every bit of cutting-edge board game um, production quality they could. They were as good as they could be, quite frankly. It's just that because board game um, production technology... 
uh, which is to say, you know, the practices that they can implement and recreate over and over and over again at Panda Manufacturing and uh, wherever you get your board games manufactured are, you know, they are getting better. The te- the underlying fundamental manufacturing technology um, or um, you know strategies and practices and protocols are getting better. So the baseline quality of games is just getting better across the board. They were as good as they could be um, back in the day. They're as good as they couldn't be now. And just like we don't watch movies in black and white anymore, we don't play um, 8-bit you know uh, games unless we choose to for aesthetic reasons because now we have almost photoreal quality uh, you know, all, every other form of entertainment, every other form of anything, uh, Model Ts are a million miles away from a Tesla. And board games are going through the same thing. We just don't tend to think of it because at the end of the day, they're all still just boxes full of cardboard with pictures on them, right? But there is still underlying technology that is improving leaps and bounds year after year and making higher quality, more robust, and more varied things the comparable cost to what it used to be to get just a box of uh, you know a box of bicycle cards and some bog standard anyway sorry uh, yeah, I, I, I went off around there. I, I, side rant. I will continue. Ben says, I know everything's gotten more expensive in recent years. Okay, well, there you go. Obviously, yes, it has. It's not just recent years. It's all years. Everything continually gets more expensive. The cost of a carton of milk in the 1950s compared to the cost of carton of milk 10 years ago, before our current pandemic, uh, you know, uh, spiked inflation, it was... It, things go up in costs over time. Anyway, I'm repeating myself. I apologize. I, I do that a lot. Anyway... I know everything's gotten more expensive in recent years, and you can still buy a lot of those older games, or you can buy lots of new games that are perfectly affordable. I mean, do not fall prey, Ben, to the siren song of, oh, if I'm not buying that $300 super box that takes up my entire living room, I'm not experiencing the best that board gaming has. Don't buy into that lie. My shelfie costs uh, thirty bucks. Um, you know, a year from now it'll cost twenty bucks. There are many, many wonderful games that uh, you can get. Uh, you know, a- every bit as much fun out of as some three hundred dollar, you know, fifteen box super project. Anyway, though, I still buy a lot of those older games. It seems the movement towards higher production values on the new games has pushed costs up to a higher rate. I don't think so. I, I don't think so. For I, I, I won't repeat myself again. People have heard me uh, repeat myself enough here. Can I think of any like the old games I've described from the last few years, or was the original version of Carpe Diem maybe the last one? I okay. Oh, that's right. You were talking about Jace's. Well, again. Jace had nothing to do with cost. Just another soulless euro was a pejorative thrown around for um, you know games that Ameritrash fel- fans felt had no theme, had um, you know had no pizzazz to their presentation. So you're right, Carpe Diem is certainly a game that doesn't have any pizzazz. But you know what? Let's put that to the test. Let's bring up the browser and go to top com. Where's my browser view? So anyway, this is a list of every game that's in my collection, sorted by how I rank them, broken down into individual years. Let's see, where is Carpe Diem? Carpe Diem uh, was in 2018, right? So let's move forward past 2018, and let's see if there's what you're referring to as a J-A-S-E, a game that is really 
stingy on production quality, right? And is yet still a fantastic game. I think that's what you're calling a JASE. Let's see if those still exist. Let's go to 20... Right, uh, 2018 was Carpe Diem? Yes. So let's go to 2019. And I'm just going to the top of my list. All righty. Um, I would say Tiny Towns. Uh, which was my number four highest-ranked game in 2019. I bet you anything Tiny Towns is a very, very affordable game that um, I think is one of the best designs. I mean, heck, tw- Tiny Town is my number 29th highest-rated game of all time. It is a box full of cubes and um, some cardboard stuff and, 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 a, and a small deck of cards. And uh, it has very nice, pretty box art. And, and the art on the cards is pretty. But we had pretty uh, art back in the day as well. Uh, but oh, and Miyabi, also from 2019, my number six of the year, is again a tile layer with just, I mean, uh, Miyabi could have come out in 2012 looking exactly like it looks right now. And um, yeah, so yeah, I, I mean, right off the bat, there is two. Walking in Provence, same thing. Uh, let's see, I'm trying to look at you know just really simple paired back. Aquatica, of course, has the really cool gimmick of the dual air boards, but with the slit in them, so you can slide cards inside your board and hide away portions. So I mean, that's like a really cool thing. But it's a wonderful world. It's interesting. It's a wonderful world. It's just a deck of cards, but it's a monstrously huge deck of cards. A monstrously huge deck of cards five years ago was so prohibitively expensive to say, hey, we've got 200 cards in this box would um, you know, cost as much as trying to make a, uh, you know, a, a cool mini or not zombie side style thing with a million little minis. Just having that many cards in a box was hugely expensive. It has become much more affordable in recent years to do that, that costs can stay low while giving you. But see, that's something that I don't think most people would appreciate, just how incredibly expensive it is. Or it used to be to have 200 cards in a box. And now it's something we don't even think twice about, but it's probably something people didn't think twice about for because I remember this specifically. People were so up in arms with Seventh Continent when it was fundraising. How could they possibly charge so much for this game? It's literally a box with a few tiny minis and 900 cards. And it's like, do you have any idea what the cost of goods on 900 unique cards is? It's unthinkable how expensive that would be. And don't get me wrong, that's still a lot of cards by today's... Um, but still, we are getting better and better. Uh, it is more normal for games to be able to have, yeah, we'll throw 100 cards in, no big deal. We we don't have that hard limit of, oh man, as soon as we go over 52 cards, or whatever the number is, because you know there are numbers where, hey, um, if you add three more cards over this limit, we have to print out a whole nother sheet. And um, that creates logistical issues because now you're doing half sheets of printing or um, you're, you know, you're having to do all kinds. Of, I mean, there's so much that goes on to behind the scenes that has just gotten so much better that a game like It's a Wonderful World uh, can be something that 10 years ago would have been insanely prohibitively expensive, even though you wouldn't have known it because you didn't because folks didn't appreciate how expensive it is to just throw a ton of cards in a box. Um, on tour? On tour is interesting. I mean, but uh, rolling rights. Roll and rights have, you know, we've had such an explosion of roll and rights over recent years, and they tend to keep the prices down pretty low, and they tend to be pretty popular. Fantastic factories. I would say that um, falls under the remit. Does it have, I think maybe the dice were slightly fancy, a tiny bit fancy, but not especially fancy. And that was in 20, um, that was just the year after Carpe Diem. I'm sure if I keep going, I will find plenty of those in the year 2020, 2021, 2022, and 2023. Uh, 2022, I just, as I was, I, cafe. Cafe is a Jace, as you define it, Ben. Um, 
and uh, Twa Dice, Glasgow. Uh, um, let's see here. Calico. Calico was a monster hit. Uh, it's my number 36 highest ranked game of all time. It's a total jace. It's got a very cute, pretty picture of a cat on the cover and some cute kittens on tiles. But otherwise, I mean, it could not be more bare bones in terms of its presentation. And it's fantastic. So, I, I, yeah, I guess, long story short, let me come back to uh, your question. I disagree. And um, I, so we have not gotten to whatever it was I was thinking. You know, okay, I, my guess is when I said the higher quality production has maybe spoiled players, if anything, what I, I'm guessing what I meant by that, because I'm just trying to interpret, what did a month ago me think? What was I thinking? Chances are, I think there is, if there's a danger about increased production quality, it's the knock-on effects for smaller independent companies who cannot commit to a 10,000-unit production cycle, right? So that they can get silkscreen minis at a a fraction of a penny to throw those in the box. Or I'm making up numbers. Those are probably not the right numbers. I'm sure they cost more than a fraction of a penny, but you know what I mean. Um, Because smaller games... Uh, that tr- that have a more modest footprint, I think there is a danger that players, uh, because they're spoiled by all these really, really cool things that only cost a tiny bit more. I mean, the number of times I've seen people saying, why does this game cost this much? You know, uh, you know, like a, a game from Spielworks, which is going to have maybe a print run of a thousand, and it costs them an arm and a leg to print it because since they can't do a print run of ten thousand, they can't make as high quality a game. But to your earlier point uh, about uh, does the gameplay suffer because the game is really pretty and high quality? No, it doesn't. Uh, gameplay, uh, you know, can suffer for a lot of reasons, but it's not because of high quality production aesthetics. But players' perceptions of gameplay can be unfairly lowered if a game comes along and doesn't look as pretty as the latest thing. Orion and Burger Canal is what I'm thinking of. Uh, Orion and Burger Canal is probably one of Uwe Rosenberg's greatest designs of all time. Um, but, uh, you know, I've seen people complaining that, oh, wow, this looks kind of ugly. Pass! And it's like, come on, I'll go play Caverna, because Caverna has cool little gems and stuff like that. Those cool little gems, instead of cardboard cutouts of gems, does not make Caverna a better game. Now, you could argue it makes Caverna more fun. I I wouldn't disagree with that, uh, because there is the tactile... We play board games because we want to touch things. Otherwise, we'd just be playing video games. So, yeah, I'm not saying, um, you know, cool little gems as opposed to a cardboard shit of a gem doesn't make the game better. But, uh, yeah, Um, I I think there is a danger that people come to expect that from everything. Then it's unfortunate that the true indies that cannot get a pre-production print run of 10,000 because they can't... Um, clear a tw- they can't clear a twenty thousand dollar Kickstarter campaign. They can maybe pull together a Kickstarter for them. A Kickstarter campaign is successful. If they get five thousand. Okay, okay, we'll do our eight hundred unit print run, and um, you know, and we'll end up having a few left over, and maybe we'll try to sell them, and no one will want to buy them because they pretty much cost the same as um, games of comparable breadth and ambition, but they don't look as pretty, and therefore they are relegated to the dustbins of history. I think that's a shame, and that's probably what I was talking about when I said things are when players can be spoiled by all the really really cool things and that's not necessarily a good thing. Phew. Okay. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's move on to Brett. All right, from Brett. Besides gamer class, do Jen and I like to pimp out our games, for lack of a better term? Are there any third-party inserts, game pieces, sleeves, or the like? Any Etsy purchases for our games uh, or accessories that make gameplay better? Oh, yeah, of course, there's millions of them. But... Uh, are there any for us? No, not really. Uh, obviously, my wife makes really wonderful gaming accessories. We use her gamer. I've got some of them just right off screen, right over there, that I sometimes have to use in prototypes that I'm filming, because sometimes prototypes don't come with all the pieces in them or whatnot. And we always love using her player pawns instead of just standard uh, meeples in games and whatnot. So, you know, that's nice for us, but that's because they only cost cost of goods and my wife's labor to make. And we've got lots of them. Lots of them. Um, and they're great. Beyond that, no, I don't think so. I would say, I mean, actually, I'm pretty sure Ruel and I did a top 10 board games accessories. Didn't we? Top 10 accessories. Rado. I am looking for that. I'm doing a Google search for that. Yes, uh, it was the R&R show, number 19, where Ruel and I did our top board game accessories. And uh, so you can go check that out, Brett. I think that'll give you a pretty good idea because there are some things, but they aren't the kind of things that people would normally consider Imping out a game. They're more for usability, like clear plastic discs are probably one of the greatest uh, you know, inventions for enhancing board game play that Jen and I have ever seen. We use them all the time. Why? Why am I mentioning this? Go check out Rado's top 10 board game accessories and you'll see. But um, in terms of fancification type stuff, yeah, I mean, I'd love... To have every miniature in every game I own that has a miniature, I'd love them to be painted because I hate gl- uh, you know lumps of gray. Or at the very least, getting that was it that sun drop peel. Or at the very least, getting a wash. I mean, you know, that's nice because the higher quality a component is, the more I'm going to enjoy the game because games are tactile. We want to touch them, we want to feel them, we want to see them. It is nicer to look at pretty things instead of ugly things um, or plain things. And so, yeah, anytime you can do that. Probably the one I can think of off the top of my head that is the most impactful, both in terms of quality of aesthetic, but also usability. Because just aesthetics is not enough for me. Except for where it comes to gamer glass. Uh, but uh, I really want something that enhances usability too. So I'm thinking of the uh, the gamer bits, the game bits that uh, Dice Tower, not Dice Tower, Board Game Geek produces en masse for all kinds of different games. These are basically things that uh, you know take the um, art of the cardboard shit you're used to playing in games and uh, basically turns them into little acrylic things that just feel nice, um, but that also will not be suffering Suffer, uh, suffer from wear and tear and start getting nips and chips and whatnot on them. Uh, I think those are amazing. I do have a few of them for a few games, most notably Orléans. Orléans is a bag builder where you're, you are fondling, you are handling pieces in that game much more so than most. And just you know, the normal oils on our hands is going to break those down over time. So I think those are great. And of course, I think my wife's stuff is great. Uh, but if you want to know what else I think is great, go check out that top 10 board games accessories. It was the R&R show number 19. Uh, but just do a search for Rado board game accessories. You'll find it. Okay. Camilla says, here is some backstory. 
questions in bold to make my life easier. Thank you, Camilla. All right, my name is Camilla, longtime listener of the podcast. I was really into board gaming for a few years, 2012 to 2017. I was really, me- really meaning I would go to Gen Con every year, listen to pod- multiple podcasts, follow many channels on YouTube, and be on top of all the shiny new board games coming out. But then, in 2017, I moved from the U.S. to Switzerland for work and had to sell many of my board games. I'm sure you can relate. Uh, moving heavy uh, cardboard boxes across the Atlantic is not cheap. Yes, I can relate, Camilla. And the saddest part of all is I didn't have my gaming group anymore. That's why you gotta marry a board gaming group. Having your board game group living with you day in and day out, I highly recommend it if you can pull it off. But anyway, with a focus on the new job, not speaking the language in a new country, not having found a good gaming group, I mostly fell out of the hobby. First, I stopped buying new games, then following board game media, and soon I only casually played a few games a year where friends were visiting. Yeah, but totally, I can totally see that. I'm sure you are not alone. Uh, sob story aside, recently, due to a long-distance friend that visits frequently, uh, and really, I got, I got really into board gaming herself, I found myself getting back into it, and I love it! Camilla! Okay, what a roller coaster you're taking us on. It, show, it shows me I never stopped enjoying board games in the board game community. Life just got too busy and the barrier continued too high. So long story short, having taken a five-year hiatus and now trying to dive into the deep end of the pool again, what did I, Camilla, miss? Of course, I don't expect you to list every single game that came out in the last five years, but in broad strokes, what has changed in the hobby since 2017? Um, from your videos podcast, I know that we have similar tastes in games. Uh, which two or three games do you think I should not miss out on? I feel somehow I have to make up for my lost time, and I feel some FOMO and a bit overwhelmed with how fast things have evolved in the last few years. That's a really interesting question. Um, I think, for me... The best way to answer this question would be to go back to top.rado.com, which anybody can go to on your browser. Camilla, you can check this out as well. I'll bring it up on screen because this is a list of my collection of games broken down by how I personally rank them, broken down by eight. What were your dates? It was 2017 to now. Let's go back to 2017. Let's go back, let's go back, let's go way on, way back when. Although, wait, I, to set the stage, I guess I have to look at 2016, where you still were. My number one game of the year, Manhattan Project, Energy Empire, Project Elite. Uh, and, of course, that's the original one with the with the melted ice cream miniatures. I mean, which which is, which leads to the uh, probably the number one thing you're going to see uh, games have gotten better and better and better and better at is not design, is not mechanisms, it's production value. I talked about this in last month's podcast. Uh, Games look and feel prettier than they ever have. They've just gotten better and better and better because of fundamental breakthroughs in uh, board game uh, manufacturing technology. So, I um, don't don't be intimidated by that. But um, let's see, the networks... uh, Aeon's in, role player... Okay, so that's where we were in 2016. So if we go to 2017... Boom! My number one game of the year in 2017 was a uh, was a Gloomhaven, and that has certainly been a big, significant sea change in the overall well, in the perceived state of the industry. Because it's very easy to fall into the trap of oh, oh my gosh, the industry is nothing but big, giant behemoth boxes full of at least 250 hours of gameplay content that you must consume, and then for only an extra hundred dollars, you can get an additional 500 hours worth of gameplay. Blah blah blah. 
I, I mean, because that is what gets, that's what grabs the headlines. That's where the excitement and enthusiasm is because it's just exciting. It's fun. It's, it's really kind of mind blowing to think of a 500 hour of 500 hours of totally unique, non repeated content. 500 hours is probably a bit much, but you know what I mean. So, and those generally uh, pay, uh, cost quite a bit because the production on them is longer and harder. There's uh, more you have to spend for people proofreading all that content and stuff like that. And so you might look around today and think, oh my gosh, that's all the game industry is now. But that's not the case. That still represents a super duper tiny percentage of the board games that come out every single year. The vast, I mean, I play very few of these and I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything, quite frankly. I'd really like to try Oathsworn. I'm really kind of bummed I missed that one. But otherwise, most of them, they come and go and I don't really care. Um, so I'm just saying, the trend that Gloomhaven kicked off, do not be tricked by that. It's not really a trend. It's like this, uh, a few years prior, Pandemic Legacy Season 1 came out and everybody uh, gloom and doomed. Oh my gosh, from now on, everything's going to be a legacy game cash grab. And hey, guess what? That has not come to pass. At this point, there's like maybe a couple of dozen over the last half decade legacy games that have come out. It's really not that big a deal. A lot of people were glooming and dooming. Oh my god, digital app integration into board games is going to completely ruin the hobby. It hasn't. There's like one, a, a fraction of a percent of games every year come out that have digital app integration. It was never going to be a threat. Digital app integration is way too costly to be able to be affordable on the incredibly narrow, thin margins that board game publishers work under. Uh, anyway, though. So, but uh, let's, let's actually jump up a little bit more. Let's go to 20... 19. Let's see what 2019 looks like. Um, Maracaibo, Black Angel. Okay, I look at those first two, and those are both, even though they're not gigantic boxes, they are still ambitious games with lots of, of gameplay. They're rich, meaty, crunchy Euros that are full of thematic flourishes and wonderful production, high-quality components, and they might look intimidating. Um, but you know, and, and Tapestry as well. But then what was my number four? Tiny Towns. Tiny Towns could have easily come out, you know, in 2005. Uh, you know, it doesn't push the envelope in terms of, you know, design innovations or art or anything. It's just an awesome little game. Honestly, I would say the same thing for Wingspan. Uh, the Probably the single biggest hit of the last decade. Wingspan has sold, what, more than 10 million copies now? 20 million copies? I forget. It's such a behemoth monster of a game. Um, and yes, it has cool little eggs and a nice little die rolling tower built in. And it comes with whatever it is, 180 you know, unique pictures of birds and all that. But the game itself is very approachable. I mean, it bends over backwards to be approachable. Miyabi, Isle of Cats, um, Walking in Provence, Mandala. Oh, half of my best of from 2019 are nice, approachable games that are pretty much the same type of games you were playing back in the day. This is why I don't think, in terms of where it matters, where the rubber hits the road, the actual gameplay experience, things probably haven't changed as much as you think. Yes, production methodologies have changed. Yes, there are fads and trends like monster boxes and stuff like that. Um, but for the most part, nope. The vast majority of the stuff that comes out that I appreciate every year... In 2020, you've got Calico. You've got Cosmic Colonies. You've got My Farm Shop. You've got Furnace. There's four games in my top ten that are simple, elegant, straightforward games that are not crazy, over-the-top, ambitious. And no, most of the rest of them aren't too far removed from Agricola or Castles of Burgundy. So, yeah... 
I'm sorry, um, uh, Camilla. I'm trying to think of what. I mean, you know, again, most of the stuff that has changed while you were away is aesthetics and fluff that doesn't really matter. Um, there are there are more every now. Um, you know, back then, back when you were still in it, we were getting maybe. Well, actually, let's test this. Let's test this. Right. Um, using, admittedly, this is a very small data point, but using my personal collection in 2017, of all the games I played in 2017, how many did I keep? 34. All right. In 2018, how many did I keep? 39. In 2019, how many did I keep? 48. In 2020, how many did I keep? 43, a little bit of a drop. In 2021, 46. In 2022, 34. Ooh, now that's a big drop. Um, and then, of course, uh, who knows about this year because, hey, I've only played uh, half a dozen games so far because, you know, we haven't hit Essence Spiel yet. Anyway, what am I saying? I am saying, overall, there are, the biggest change is the industry has gotten much better at its job. Every year, there are, uh, there are, for the most part, I mean, maybe, maybe not consistently year on year, but overall, we are trending to every year, there are more great games available than the previous year. There's more variety, more options, more choice, which I appreciate is also more of a headache. Um, but, you know, what, what can I say? Uh, I, I do my best. You can go to top.raw.com and I'll, t- and, uh, uh, you know, let me go back to it for a second. Every one of these games where I've got a video, you can see, you can just click on the video and see why it's my num- why Shapers of Gaia is my number eight game of last year. So I'm doing my best to try to make it a little bit easier for you. But again, that's if you're calibrated and coordinated to what I dig. And, you know, not everybody's going to be. Uh, so you've got to find somebody that matches your taste. There are other options. Uh, Camilla, what was a game that you loved? Did you, did you mention anything in here from back in the day that you loved? A specific game. No, you didn't, but I am just going to guess, Camilla, that you, I mean, if you used to listen to my podcast, I'm going to guess at some point you tried out Agricola and thought it was the bee's knees, right? Um, let's see, hold on, let's come back over here. By the way, also, when you're at top.raw.com, you can go directly to my videos, or you can go directly to the game itself. Just click on the game, it'll take you to the page on BoardGameGeek. Here's something handy. Go to BoardGameGeek. Here's Agricola. This is one of the coolest things BoardGameGeek has introduced. A few years ago, they did this. Scroll down a little bit, and it'll say, Fans Also Like. And it will tell you some other games you can check out. Hey, there's 28 other games that they recommend if you like Agricola, like Viticulture and Concordia and Twa and um, Galaxy Trucker. Now, this is really interesting. I was expecting it was going to tell me about some new games, but it's only telling me about older games. Now, here's a... I'm just going to try and think of... First thing I can think of, uh, Fantastic Factory. Fantastic Factories. Fantastic Factories is a game that I absolutely adore. I gave it an 8.5 in 2019. It's probably in my top 20 of the year. But anyway, if I look at that as a more recent game, if you can find one recent game you liked, and then you come here, it'll tell you about other recent games. It seems like this system is kind of sticking within eras of as well. But hey, Planet Unknown and Calico. Those are fantastic suggestions if you like Fantastic Factories. And Furnace and Meadow. Um, you know, If you can find one game you like... Camilla, Board Game Geek has your back. It will give you very, very good suggestions based on the just kind of hive mind of Board Game Geek. So that's something you could use to try to get back into the swing of things. You know, just find a few you like from more recently and then see what Board Game Geek recommends. 
Uh, so that might be a place that you might want to start. Phew. Okay. And then let's move on to Daniel. Daniel has a few questions. For starters, a luck in cooperative games number three. Okay. This is something Daniel and I have been going back and forth on. I'm sorry, Daniel. As you know, I don't remember what I said a month ago, uh, but hopefully you'll help me see. Uh, all right. So co-op luck uh, part three, the next generation. So Daniel mentions Aeon's End. I agree that four boss turns in a row isn't a big deal. Uh, neither is deck reshuffling, but it is frustrating and unfun. Okay, it's coming back to me, Daniel. Luck for the sake of luck. Well, you know what? Not every game is for everybody, Daniel. I don't look at it that way. Um, I, well, first of all, a game with no luck, to me, is pretty boring. I want to be able to make reasoned expectations, and sometimes those expectations come to pass, and I get a wonderful sense of satisfaction that, oh, I was ahead of the curve, I made the right call, I am brilliant. And sometimes I want those expectations to be subverted. And in a, in a, in a competitive game, they can be subverted by the unpredictability of the human brain. In a co-op game, they can be um, subverted by, you know, pro sometimes probabilities, sometimes you roll Three one three ones on a roll, even though that's statistically unlikely. Sometimes it happens, and luck goes the other way. And I, you know, and I don't think of that as just luck for the sake of luck. I think of that as an important ingredient in the overall stew of good, exciting cooperative gameplay. I want sometimes for uh, for me to feel like, yeah, I beat this system. Sometimes I want this system to beat me. And if there was no luck, if I could just um, figure out everything ahead of time, then why aren't I just doing a crossword puzzle or Sudoku instead? I, you need that juice, that extra zip of life. And, and honestly, if you find that frustrating, I'm sorry, just isn't for you. But it is still an important part of the game. And it is still a system that you should not be engaging on a, hey, that's not fair. How could I know the boss was going to attack two times in a row? Instead, you need to approach this. Now, always remember, it's unlikely, but the boss might attack two times in a row. And if that happens, am I prepared for it? It's just giving you an extra hurdle that you have to overcome, an extra complication that you have to manage. And to me, anyway, that's where the fun comes in. But anyway... Uh, Daniel continues, less uh, and less said about the cards that say a mage such and such takes damage equal to their current life, the better. That's the thing. You know those are in there. You know that every once in a while the game can throw a nuke on you, and you have to be prepared for that. Um, now, honestly, I don't think such cards actually exist, but if they do, I do think it's important that um, you have an opportunity, like you know, an event that would just like insta-kill somebody. That should come out at the beginning of a round, so you have the entire round to deal with it. Uh, if that's something that comes out and immediately resolves, yeah, I would say that is fundamentally poor design. But this is getting back to what you said at the beginning, where you said, oh, it's so common to see these, and I still maintain that, where, oh, just draw a card and just insta-die is very few and far between. You don't see that in games. Instead, you see games where, oh, this card that just got revealed, and I don't have time to respond to, does kill me, but not because no matter what, under any circumstances, it was going to insta-kill me. It insta-killed me because I put myself in a precarious situation where I was not going to be able to survive. That's the trick. That's how you have to approach these. Um, I, you, you, when you say, you died to no fault of your own, could technically full health, and um, if... You're one of the mages of uh, one breach. That might be technically mean you're out of the game. Um, yeah. Again, 
you'd have to give me. I mean, you 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 state like like that. This is as common as uh, what's a really common thing? Uh, as common as carbon. Uh, but I don't think it is. I think what you're describing there, a card that says one player instantly dies, no matter what. There's nothing they can do. Um, even if you know, th- I don't believe that exists. I would agree with you that that is a bad card and shouldn't exist in a game. And yeah, maybe a few of them squeeze in, but that is not the norm. The norm is a thing comes out that kills you because of the situation you allowed yourself to get into. All right. Uh, and that card comes randomly into the boss deck, so it uh, can be there or not. And even if you knew it was in the deck, there's nothing to prevent it. Well, again, that particular card, I agree. But you're gonna have to. We're gonna have to do um, co-op luck in games number four, and you're gonna have to tell me these specific cards. And I will go get them out of the box, and we will evaluate that together. Because I'm gonna have to say right now, Daniel, you're making a straw man. You're. You. I believe you are remembering a circumstance where you feel like, ah, that card. There was nothing I could have done. There is no way in any universe I could have ever prepared for it. And I'm gonna say. Yeah, that card killed you because three turns ago, you didn't buy a health pack or whatever it might be. Anyway, though, let's continue. That being said, do here's the question. The question! Do I think that these two or three chaotic cards in otherwise fair games are making the game better? If yes, why? I, well, first of all, you have not given specific examples. So we'll have to follow up this next month. I'm sure you'll be back. You know the email. Questions at, question, questions at rotto.com, everybody. But, um... If we're talking, I will. I, I will grant that. Uh, let's say these cards exist in Aeon's End. A uh, uh, literally a nuclear bomb that there is nothing that can be done to instantly, permanently remove a player from the game on the very, very first turn. Right? Let's say that there in, in a given game there are two or three of those. If, if, does the existence of that improve the quality of the game? Not as explained by that. A card that can insta-kill and remove from the entire experience a player from in round one before they've even had a chance to draw their first card or roll their first die, that is fundamentally poor design. I would agree with that. What I would not agree with is that that actually exists. So you will have to follow back on that. Okay, on to question number two from Daniel. In my opinion, what are the elements, mechanisms, appeal, etc., that a fictional best board game of all time should have? For example, the best game of all time should be a, a war game slash dungeon crawler slash adventure game, etc., with resource slash hand management slash deck building, uh, and have four plus difficulty, complexity modes, etc. So, well, first of all, you didn't give me enough to answer this question, so I'm going to have to fill in the blanks here. Because there's two ways I could answer this. And the way I'm inclined to answer this, and the way that I answer everything is, well, I can tell you that answer a, a best game of or of a best board game of all time for me. But a best board game of all time for me, I guarantee you, is gonna be a piece of hot garbage for a sizable percentage of the board game geek community because we're all unique snowflakes and we all like what we like and dislike what we dislike. And so, um, on some level, it's, it's, it's meaningless. Now, what I suspect you're asking is a true objective across the board for all human beings throughout all of history, greatest game of all time. What would that have? I don't think it exists. I don't think it fundamentally exists. But, but, 
if I were to try to do it as a thought exercise, because here's the deal. Answering it for me is very easy. Just go to um, games.rado.com. You'll see my number one ranked game of all time. You'll see, you, you can see my top 10 ranked games of all time. Break those down. Find the most common elements, you know, stitching all those things together, and you'll see the answer for me personally. What makes a greatest game of all time, right? But if we were to say, for humanity as a whole, what um, what what are the objective traits to create the greatest game of all time? I think, first of all, it has to work well. You know, in years past, I might have say would have said it has to work well from two to five players. But I'm going to extend that to say um, it can't be considered the greatest game of all time unless it works well from one to five players at least. I got across. I mean, I can't say I'm not going to say for all player counts. I don't think that's reasonable. But I, I, I if, if a game wants to be considered greatest game of all time, truly for humanity, I'm going to say it has to be able to support equally well a one player game all the way up to a five player game. Could go higher, but I'm not. I'm going to say I don't. All right. So that's one thing that I think is hugely important. Um, I'm going to have to say it's got to be pretty AF. It's got to be just lovely and gorgeous. Um, and I'm going to go so far as to say, not in a quirky way, but in kind of a universally uh, appreciation of beauty kind of way. Because again, I'm tr- I'm trying to cast nets of just things you got to do. If you want to say this is truly greatest of all time, I'm trying to uh, you know cast a blanket net as much as possible. Uh, it doesn't have to be the prettiest game of all time, but it has to hit certain aesthetic standards. And when I'm talking about universal standards, I'm talking about like rules of three. The um, oh, what is it? You know, what's the is it the Fibonacci circle? Um, you know, symmetry between images. You know, I mean, like the real hard science of beauty. Because our brains, you know, what we think of as beauty in the human face, more than anything else, is just how symmetrical the left and right side of their face is. And the more asymmetrical, the more we respond saying, oh, that person is less attractive. Because our brains are hardwired to use our faces as some kind of representation of the genetic um, predisposition of that person if we're evaluating them as a mate or a competitor. The stronger their genetics, the more attractive we find them. And you know, our stupid monkey brains on some level think, yeah, asymmetry is a way to get that because... We're evolved from apes, and we don't know any better. Of course, that's not a true reflection of people, um, you know, and, and their true worth. But it is still something that works in our brain. So I would say a game has to leverage that. Uh, so it has to work for player counts. It has to, um, you know, hit a certain level of aesthetic pleasingness. I would say. And I don't think you're going to like this, Daniel. It has to have a strong ratio. Mmm, mmm. I was gonna, I was gonna throw luck in. I was gonna. I know luck is a dirty word for you, and I was gonna, I was even gonna throw that in there. That's the thing. No, no, no. Uh, it, it has to. Okay, I'm gonna take back for that. Because what do I appreciate about luck in games? I appreciate in a co-op game. What I really appreciate is what it does. I think it has to be a game that has probably, I think, a, an overall ratio. Let's say four fifths of the overall experience. Maybe two thirds of the overall experience, I have to feel like I am in control. I have to, the game has to give me a sense that I can make smart tactical and strategic decisions that allows me to control my destiny. And then the remainder, I have to be in a situation where I can potentially be confounded by 
whatever it is that goes into the game. I think, and that ratio, maybe it's four-fifths. Of course, it's going to be variable. So I'm just trying to find a good average. You know, maybe 75-25. You know, maybe 75%, I'm in control, 25%, maybe even 80-20. Because, of course, I lean more towards having more control, but just like occasional flashes of confoundedness. Now, those aren't the kind of things you're talking about. You're talking about, um, you know, sci and fiction and fantasy and and I'm not going to say any of those things can truly be applied towards this. I'm looking down more at the fundamental core building blocks of the experience this game creates. Is it visually and tactilely um, you know, pleasing? Uh, does it give me a sense of control over my destiny? Um, does, uh, oh, here's another one. Does it have enough depth to allow me to revisit it over and over and find new avenues within it? Right, I think that's absolutely essential. There's probably other things, but I can't spend forever on every single question. So those are some off the top of my head. Okay, in terms of how complex, I mean, I'm going to stop right there. That was fun. Okay, Daniel's final question. I'd argue that Gloomhaven was not number one on Board Game Geek because of enormity, uh, although it did help. It was number one because it's a dungeon crawler for Euro gamers and Ameritrash gamers don't mind it, uh, either because of the theme and unlocking of stuff. Proof. Jaws is smaller and still in the top 10 on Board Game Geek. Oh, <laughs> Jaws of the Lion. I thought you meant Jaws the board game. Like, what? Jaws the board game is in the top? No, it's not. Um, I'm going to counter that proof. I am going to go to the Board Game Geek top 10 right now. Board Game Geek, you go to Board Game Geek, you click on the BGG in the corner, and, uh, oh, where is it? Somewhere in here. You say browse, you say all board games, oops, and then it takes you to the Board Game Geek top 100. Now, putting aside the fact that, of course, uh, probably since the time you've written this, uh, uh, Gloomhaven has dropped to number three, but it's, I, think, I think it's still applicable. It's still high enough to warrant um, stuff. Now, how many of the top 10 games are what you said? Dungeon, fantasy dungeon crawlers for your gamers that Ameritrash gamers don't mind. Uh, there, Brass Birmingham? That is not that. Pandemic Legacy Season 1? Not that. Ark Nova? No. Twilight Imperium 4? No. Not Dungeon Crawler. Tw uh, Terraforming Mars? No. D Dune Imperium? No. War of the Ring? No. Star Wars Rebellion? No. Spirit Island? No. That's the top ten. And I am going to ignore Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion. Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion is here because it's Gloomhaven. Oh, you're saying Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion... I'll tell you, Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion is on here is because it's an expansion to Gloomhaven. If Gloomhaven had not previously been made it to the number one, Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion, Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion was ultimately going to get a ranking close to wherever Gloomhaven was. That's a, If Gloomhaven had tapped out in the top 800, Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion would be in the top 900. That's just where it was going to be. So Gloomhaven making it in this list as a smaller, less robust game is immaterial. Gloomhaven is there because it's a sequel to the number one game. So that's why I'm going to take it out. And the other nine, but let's keep going. If you say um, that uh, Gloomhaven only succeeded, there are other games that um, you know do well. I mean, let's see. But how far do we have to go before we get to another Gloomhaven game in the top 100? Uh, let's see. Nemesis, I would say, is probably the closest thing to that. Although Nemesis is not a very Euro-y game at all, is it? It's really not. And you said it's a Euro game through and through. So let's look for a Euro dungeon crawler. Mmm, Clank Legacy. That's a Euro dungeon crawler. 
So we've got to go up to number 24 or maybe number, maybe around number 20 if you take out duplicates. So we've got one in the top 10. We've got one in the top 20. That's not bad. Let's keep going. Let's find the next one. I'm curious to see how common this will be. Lost Ruins. No, I'm not going to call Lost Ruins Arnak. All right. Ooh, Mage Knight the board game. There's number three. So we've got one in the 30s now. It seems like, oh, we skipped the teens entirely, but we're getting one every 10 or 20, which means there is definitely love for um, Euroy style fantasy adventure. Uh, I, I think I, there, you're, I, I would agree there is an appetite for that. But these other games have not taken the number two, three, and four slot. I mean, what I was really looking for was Oathsworn. Oh, Too Many Bones. There's another one. So there is certainly a love for this. But if I were to break down the top 100 and how many Gloomhaven-esque games there are versus... I mean, that would actually be a really interesting thought exercise. Dan, if you got some time, do it, and we'll talk about it next month. Of the Board Game Geek Top 100, how many are straight Euro economic simulations? How many are um, you know fantasy adventure games? How many are whatever you want to break it down? And that would be a really interesting way to get the gestalt of the Board Game Geek hive mind. But anyway, um, I think we've got that covered. So let's move on. Darren says... Watching the Rankining this week, and for those who don't know, the Rankining is a bi-weekly shoka I do where I compare all my games. I compare Overboss to Rise. I compare Holler Tau to Roll Camera. And it's like a series of mini death matches as I'm slowly ranking my entire collection. And it gives me an opportunity to talk about games, often games, that you may never have heard of, quite frankly. Anyway, that's what the Rankining is. A lot of fun. People seem to enjoy it. So anyway, Darren was watching the Rankining, and I mentioned game designers redesigning older games and making them a bit easier going. Well, okay, I didn't need to describe the ranking at all. We're moving completely changing subjects. This would be because back in the day... All right, so, so yes, I talked about... I've talked about this on more than one occasion. I'm, I'm more often seeing this trend that when a game gets revisited, it gets a Deluxe Lavish 2.0, it seems to me to be the case that by and large, the designs are being... In, in addition to the, you know, the art and the production quality, you know, being upgraded, that the designs are going through an upgrade as well. And there is a common trait amongst these upgrades that has a tendency towards, one, increasing the complexity by introducing new things, like beer in Brass, Birmingham, while at the same time, two, decreasing the challenge the players have to face. Beer makes your life easier. Uh, or, you know, Brass, Birmingham, again, lets you um, create wild cards to do your actions if, you, if the cards don't give you what you want. You know, so, hey, the rules get more complex, but the gameplay itself is less punishing. And I've, I'm just seeing that over and over and over again. Tell me if I'm wrong, folks. Uh, uh, it just seems. I mean, I, when I start noticing Stefan Feld doing it, I'm like, "Wow, this is a, this is definitely a thing." So anyway, Darren continues, or Darren hy uh, hypothesizes. I'm guessing this would be because back in the day, board games were only played by gamers. No one else knew they existed, but now they're played by everyone. So a game needs to appeal to masses and not just the niche audience who wants a gamer game. Okay, so I guess in the ranking, I must have asked, "Hey, why do you think this is?" And Darren is answering my question in the podcast. There's crossover! Yay! Um, I disagree, Darren, because we're talking about brass. We're talking about Macau. We are talking about Agricola. We are not talking about games that are, how did you put it? Um, played by everyone. I'm not talking about that. I suspect 
The, um, yeah, because I'm talking about games that were already super crunchy and complicated, and they're becoming more complicated. Um, you know, I mean, uh, Caverna to, from Agricola added so much extra stuff, made this game so much more complex, harder to learn, and yet at the same time gave you wildcard resources and doesn't punish you as much for not feeding and all this kind of stuff. So it makes it less punishing and more complicated. That to me is in no way, shape, or form a recipe for making a game more appealing to a mass market. Um, you know, th- games have to become less complicated to appeal to a mass market more. And the, by and large, in the games I've noticed this happening, that's not what's happening. So I don't think that's it, um, Darren. I think it's a reflection of, I mean, you know, the, the, uh, these are gamer geek games. These are not, I mean, I'm not talking about, I mean, I, I mean is this happening with, with gateway games? I don't think so. I mean, what, what's the best thing I can think of? There's Ticket to Ride. And then there's these Ticket to Ride Express games to make them even more gateway, and they make the game simpler, not more complicated. Um, So I don't think this is happening with gateway games. It's happening with heavy, rich, crunchy, meaty games. And it's because it's uh, the. I mean, obviously, the publishers are doing it because they have identified this is an important thing to do to ensure we sell better. I mean, I think more often than not, really what's happening is the publishers are responding to outspoken players who said, ah, this game is too mean, it's too harsh, it's too unfair and crushing to my spirit. And like, okay, well, I'll tell you what, we'll we'll pull it back. We'll make it a little bit easier for you. But then they find, oh, the game isn't much fun because that tension that threat, that challenge to overcome, and the satisfaction you get for successfully feeding your family in Agricola, with when it's gone, the game become, falls flat. So then what do they have to do? Well, okay, let's throw some more bells and whistles. Let's throw some more toys in the box. And they up the complexity to compensate for the drop in tension. Me, that's what I think is happening. But I don't know. I've never actually talked to any developer about that. Um, okay. Gerard says, question number one. When you play games, a game not for the Rotto Runs Through channel, uh, that game has a, and that game has events. Do you house rule it to work like your favorite event system, like Orleans, in that you can see the next upcoming event? Um, no. Okay, so first of all, what Gerald means is, you know, uh, whenever I on those rare occasions when Jen and I play a game just for fun. Right, a game that's not because oh, I want to cover it in the next couple of weeks on the channel. So Jen, I have to play this. I have to learn the game. I have to learn its ins and outs and all that. It's my job. When I play a game for fun, which I think predominantly would happen at conventions more than anything else, quite frankly, it doesn't happen much in our lives. But let's say it did happen. Um, I have uh, Gerald is right to point out that I have often decried, or no, more to point, I have often put on a pedestal game designs that introduce surprise twists through an event, a card of events that can change the economy of the game on a whim or create new obstacles to overcome or eliminate obstacles or whatever it might be. I always appreciate it when games don't just draw the card and it immediately resolves and players did not have a time to respond to it. And inevitably, some players benefit from it more than others. And I think that's actually weak design. Or at best, I'm going to say meh, average design, right? Because it's, it's done a lot. It's still done a lot to this day. It's much better to say, hey, 
reveal the card and give everybody two full turns before, uh, so they can respond to it because it's not going to hit you for two turns. That's the much better design. And so it's also a design that is very easy to retrofit. So is that something that I would be implicitly inclined to do? Would I house rule games to do that, um, given the opportunity? The answer is no. Because I work under the assumption... Well, with very few exceptions. I'd probably maybe do it every once in a while. But for the most part, if I have the rare window to play a game just for fun, I don't want to experiment. That game, before it hit my table, was played in in thousands. I was about to say hundreds of thousands, probably not, but thousands of man hours of playtesting and feedback and design iteration and all this stuff. And so, on the one hand, I've got this mountain of evidence that says this is the best this game can be. And on the other hand, I've got my own personal little predilection. And yes, my own personal predilection might make it better for me personally. But what I worry about is there is a reason because of this mountain of evidence to the contrary that the game is the way it is. And what I don't want to do is spend the entire game thinking, wow, me doing this, am I actually breaking the game? Am I hurting the game? Am I making the game too easy? Am I breaking the balance of it because I get a chance to respond to events? And you know, the game was never designed with that in mind. I don't want that extra level. There's actually an entry about this on faq.rada.com. Long story short, I generally avoid unofficial house rules because they have not been vetted by the development team who truly understand in a way that I never will what the underlying intent of this game experience is. And if I I want to experience the way the game the artist intended. So no, I, I would tend not to do that. I would also tend to play a game that's better designed and actually implements that from the get-go. Question two. When I worked in video games, how long did it take to finish developing a video game that took the longest? Uh, What game is the quickest? You know what? That needs to go into the personal Q&A because that has nothing to do with board games. So we're going to move that into the section later on. Uh, Question number three. Have I thrown off the Rosenberg Shaffles? Do I no longer prefer games like this? I don't think so. I think I still love it. Uh, um, I, yeah, I, I love the, the Rosenberg Shackles being earlier uh, Uwe Rosenberg games tended to treat you very roughly, give you a lot of tough problems to overcome, and if you failed to overcome them, it would punish you, penalize you. I, I still like that. I will say, though, it's maybe, maybe you're responding to the fact that I think my wife is developing less of a tolerance for that. That she is, uh, because of where her headspace is in our lives right now, mostly because we're no longer living in Malta anymore. We moved back to the States and that has created so much more stress in our lives, especially hers. Um, You know, and we do everything we can to try and minimize it. But uh, I, I think she's in a point where she has less enthusiasm. And when she plays a game, she's looking for more something to just relax and not have huge challenges to overcome. So, does that have a knock-on effect for what we actually play? Yeah, probably. Doesn't change my opinions. I want a game to just beat me up and uh, uh, and, and, and make me try to overcome uh, insurmountable odds. That's what I love the most. Or maybe not the most, but that's what I really appreciate. Jack says, question number one. Another mechanism question. I love rondelles in games uh, with Matt Gertz being one of my favorite designers. To your mind, what does the rondelle contribute to the game? Uh, my rated rondelle games are... Jack, I really appreciate you do this, that you give me the links that I can follow. 
Let me see. I hold control and click that. And yep, there opens up. So here is my list of Rondell games in my collection right now. And the question is, what does the Rondell contribute to the game? And you're just helping me uh, kind of uh, food for thought there, right? So, well, I mean, I, I, well, let's look at what the Rondell is mechanically. It is a mechanism that the designers use to do to accomplish two things. Limit and restrict what I can do but give me the power to plan for what am I going to do next turn, and the turn after that, and the turn after that. Rondells, and I think, yeah, looking through this list of the ones I've got, this is pretty much, this is going to be a common element of all of these games. These are games that reward strategic long-term thinking. If I do this on this turn, that will then give me access to these three actions on the next turn. And oh man, and then I really want my third turn to be that action on the other side of the rondelle. But that means by turn three, I will have had to move forward at least five steps on the rondelle. So do I move one step this turn and then four steps next turn? Because then that'll get me to where I really want to be in three turns. Now, I appreciate not everybody plays that way. But that's how Jen and I play games. Um, and so, rondelles are just such a perfect little system, and they just lay it all out there. You know what would be less interesting? A rondel where you can only see the next five steps. You can only choose from the next three, and most of everything else on the rondel is face down, and the rondel is constantly redefining itself as you go. Then it would be a less... I mean, honestly, I'll be honest, that is actually kind of cool. The rondelle that evolves over time in completely unpredictable ways, but I don't think I'd appreciate that as much as a regular rondelle game where I can be playing out my next three or four turns um, because I know, hey, if I move once now, then I move three times, then oh, I mean, okay, if I just move once, boom to boom, and I do these two back to back, but then that means the next thing I'll have to, what will I do to placehold until I can get to where I need to go? Yeah, I, I think that you're going to find that played, um, you know, at, at, at the higher level, that's what these games offer. Glenmore 2 is not a rondelle game. That is a time track game. That is something completely different. Whoever called that a rondelle game made a mistake. Is Glenmore on here? Nope. Glenmore is labeled correctly. Glenmore 2 is not. Time tracks are not rondelles. Time tracks don't do necessarily... They kind of do what I said, but they are... Actually, oh my gosh! A time track like Glenmore is exactly what I just described. It is a rondelle that is constantly remaking itself over time. Wow, I like that. That is actually fun. I never thought about that. Thank you for um, asking the question that prompted me to have that um, observation I never had before, Jack, about one of my favorite games of all time, Glenn Moore. So anyway, I would say that's what makes a uh, what what really the main value of rondelles. Question number two. I noticed that you don't actually have any rondelle games from Matt Gertz, Concordia being um, the one design you now own. Is there something about how he uses rondelles that doesn't speak to you as much? Or is it simply too many games and each one had different reason to let go? I'd give you a link to your gone list on BGG. Unfortunately, it doesn't let me uh, apply a designer filter. Yeah, that is kind of a shame. Um, board game always has room to improve. But still a great site anyway. Uh, it's, it's the latter. It's Okay, here's the deal. Um, the number one thing is... Concordia, I know, Concordia is not a rondelle game at all. But everything I just described about rondelles, about how they're really strong strategic things, uh, you know, give you all this. Uh, Concordia does that in a different way with the you know with the card hand management and all of that. More of a deck builder than a rondelle game, really. Uh, but it's a hand builder because you don't. Well, anyway, regardless, that's uh, just getting lost in the weeds of definitions. So the problem is Concordia. So freaking good. So freaking good that it just kind of eclipsed. I mean, Navigador and um, Hamburgum and 
Transatlantic. Actually, I think Transatlantic is a better game than um, Concordia, but I had a lot of expansion content for Concordia, so it just didn't make sense for me to... In, in the interest of trying to keep my shelf space under control... Also, the other thing, all of Matt Gert's game come in freaking gigantic boxes that take up the space of two regular games. So it was more a, an act of practicality. I thought those games were great, and I thought they were wonderful examples of everything I just talked about with Rondell-style gameplay. But Concordia, I mean, if I could only pick one of them, because I was just trying to save space, Concordia gave me... And you know, and also me, I mean, you can look at my list. I, I mean, uh, what of my... Uh, almost every single Rondell game is a normal-sized box. Except for Glenmore 2. And honestly, Glenmore 2's box is a little big. I, a few years, you might find it not on my shelf anymore, and it might just go back to Glenmore 1. But I, I really want to explore all those different modules in Glenmore 2 before such a thing would happen. But anyway, that's that's what it comes down to. It's a practicality thing. Because uh, Matt Gertz is a phenomenal Rondell designer. I mean, he is Mr. Rondell. He's been championing it for years, and now everybody benefits from his design crusade. Question number three. Have I followed the Clackalope Aeons in Trespass Odyssey controversy? What are my thoughts? Honestly, at the time, I didn't. I was aware of it, but I mostly my thoughts were, oh, that's really a, that's a shame. Oh, man, that's unfortunate. Oh, wow, that's too bad he's lost, uh, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's too bad he's lost all those viewers that he's worked so hard to get. But it's also, that's way too bad that the developer was put into that incredibly uncomfortable position. And I think it was unfair of the one party to put the other party in that position. And I think it's a, a, a real shame that the whole thing happened. Um, I, what else is there to say, really? It's just, it's all very sad. Um, all, you know, all around. Oh, okay, one thing I will say is, while everybody was quick to assume that Jesse wrote that email fully with the full intent to, what's it, extort money. Out, you know, not, not um, everybody says blackmail, but it, functionally it wasn't blackmail, it was extortion. But regardless, he purposely was extorting the publisher. I don't believe that to be the case at all. Because when I, when I did read the email and I read the email, I read it from my perspective as a content creator. I imagined if I had put... 50 hours of work into a game, filming it, um, 49 and a half of those hours had absolutely nothing to do with my review of the game. It was the playing of the game, it was the filming of the game, it was the dealing with mistakes of the game, it was the uh, the fails, uh, restarts, and trying over, and the logistics. I think he actually flew somebody from out of state over. It was the cost incurred, it was the man hours. It was this huge mountain of work. Oh, and by the way, amongst all of that, there was about 30 minutes where I actually talked about the game. And that was the easiest part. That was the thing I don't even think about. What I th- The work is all this other stuff. And when he said, hey, you know what? I'd, I'd love to refilm the thing if, if I could work together with you. He was thinking about that 49 and a half hours that I did this run through that took me a work week. Um, you know, uh, you know, uh, split amongst three people. Uh, this, I mean, and these are people I'm paying money to. I paid these people money to come here and help me with this. This is also applying towards my bills and all of that. And I'm willing to throw all of that work I did away and start over because I think the end product will be better. 
because um, you know there'll be fewer mistakes in the video. Um, you know, I, I can have more. I, I can get more of an insight into the game, and I can express that to the audience. There'll be a lot of upside, and so all that work I put into it, I'll just throw it away. And when he said that, he wasn't even thinking about the review portion because that's such a small, from the creator's point of view, such a small inconsequential element. So that's what he meant. And now, doesn't matter what he meant. Um, you know, intentions are all well and good, but results are what matter. And I do think it's a shame that in his follow-up video, he very clearly did not understand the fundamental problem with what he said. Because he could only see, well, here's what I thought, I here's what I meant to say. And that's all he could see. And it seems like he did not understand. Yes, but here's what any reasonable person would take what you said and how anybody would interpret it. They would interpret it as extortion. And that would put somebody in an incredibly uncomfortable situation. If it had been me, if some, you know, and um, if I had written something, and then later on I found out that what I wrote made another human being incredibly uncomfortable, you know, have meetings to decide how do we deal with this? Oh my gosh, this is really putting us in a bad situation. They're literally losing sleep over it, trying to come up with. If I ever found out that something I did caused that from somebody, my first response would not be, "Well, here's the deal. You don't understand what I really meant was you just misunderstood me." No, my response would be. Oh my God, I am so sorry I caused you that grief. I I am so sorry. I totally see. Yeah. How else would you... Yes, I was a freaking idiot. Anybody would um, interpret that that way. That's not what I meant, but that doesn't matter. I caused you this stress and this tension, and all I can do is apologize and take this as a lesson moving forward and try to do better. And, you know, I, I, I hope you can forgive me I'm definitely going to take this on board, but I understand if you don't. That would be my response. That was not Jesse's response. And that's unfortunate too, because really in his video, his takeaways were like, here's what I'm going to do to resolve the problem. And none of his solutions addressed the fundamental problem because it seems like he didn't get the problem. At least that's how I perceive And I told, again, I'm sympathetic to his perspective because his perspective is fundamentally different than a normal human being's. He was looking at that 49 and a half hours, that mountain of work and stress that he went through, and that probably he feels kind of proud of. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, there's some problems with it, but I worked really hard, and here's what we've got, and this is it. And this is a big deal for me to throw all that away and start over. But I'll do that, um, because I, I would like to work with you on this. And then, and he just wasn't even thinking about the, you know, that what for him was just a small little insequential bit that I'm sure he would have you know thrown away that too, or he wouldn't have. He, he just wasn't thinking about that, because that was inconsequential to him, when in fact, that was everything to everybody else. And he just didn't seem to get that. So, and again, that's why when I come back to it, to me, the whole thing is just incredibly sad. It's... Uh, you know, it, it, it just, it's too bad. But hey, you know, every, every mistake is an opportunity to learn and grow. And I, 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 I hope that we can all, I mean, certainly, I, you know, looking at it, it's a lesson. I mean, I'm careful with my language. I am always trying to be positive and upbeat. And uh, I would never want to put anybody in that situation. And I hope I never have. But if I have, oh my gosh, I am so sorry I did. But it's certainly a... Uh, a good um, morality play. It's a, it's a good opportunity for me to remind myself, right? When somebody says you hurt me, my response should always be, "Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. How did I hurt you? How can I do better next time?" Because I did not want to do that. St uh, full stop. Start finish. That's the response. Because at the end of the day, 
Your intentions don't matter. Your actions do. So that's, that's where I come at it. Okay, next up. Jonathan asks, everyone I've played Earth with has completely fallen in love with it. Jonathan, have you and I played Earth? Because I also fell in love with it. For me, it's a true Wingspan killer. After the first few plays of Wingspan, I really had no desire to play it again, but I have played Earth almost a dozen times with no where in sight. I have to say that while there are a lot of similarities, the game just seems a lot more thematic. There are a lot of incredible and logical synergies, whereas for me, the birds in Wingspan are okay, but they seem very one-dimensional. I'm going to pause for a second and say, I would certainly agree, Jonathan. Wingspan is a much more abstract game than Earth. Of course, all board games are abstract to varying degrees, because at the end of the day, we're not actually out there in the world shooting the gun or digging the ditch or rescuing the bird or whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, I would say Wingspan's me mechanisms are more abstracted from what they are trying. It, it's more of a leap in logic, whereas Earth, oh man, that game just sinks. But anyway, let's continue on. Oh, and so your question, how would I compare the two games? To me, I would almost say we can hand the Kennerspiel over right now, but we'll see. Maybe the committee will think it's too crunchy. Alrighty. Okay. Um, how would I compare Wingspan and Earth? Oh, this is where I should really do some research before I just sit down and start recording and see what I come up with. It, I, I think it's totally reasonable to draw comparisons between the two because at the end of the day, they are both engine building games uh, with a positional element to your card play. Now, at the end of the day, Wingspan is a stronger engine building game is more about because in Wingspan, hey, I'm building out this row of cards and I will activate repeatedly over and over and over again throughout the game this particular engine. I've got three engines over the course. I don't, I've never counted it, but I will run my engines dozens of times as I make them bigger and stronger. And the key to success in Wingspan is making sure these three engines synergize together. And I think that is awesome sauce. Uh, and I think that is the secret strength of Wingspan, not the wonderful production or the beautiful art or, you know, the, the wide variety of effects and, you know, the big deep deck of cards. Of course, both games have big deep decks of cards as well. Um, it's, it's trying to fine tune three separate engines that feed each other towards a common goal. And Earth does that to an extent, but... Not, not in quite the same way. I mean, both games feature an objective-based system where, hey, look, everybody can see these are the things we need to do to get bonus points on top of everything else we're doing. And in Wingspan, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, that's a nice little thing. It's almost an afterthought. Whereas for Earth, it defines the entirety of the experience. And, I mean, at the end of the day, don't get me wrong, I rank Earth higher than Wingspan as well. Do I? Let's confirm that, shall we? I want to know. Games... I go back to games.rado.com and then I do a control F for wingspan is my number 31 and earth is my, man, I've played a lot of games, or is my number 23. So actually they're both in my top 50 games, but earth comes in higher. So I guess really the question would be why? Why do I rank earth higher? I think in part it's because earth is a richer simulation. Wingspan is simulating a little thing, a bird sanctuary, where birds procreate and feed. That's it. That's everything in Wingspan uh, revolves around those things. So the, so the variety you get in cards 
all dovetail back to eating, procreating, um, or yeah, attracting more birds, right? So there's there's less for Elizabeth and everybody to play with there. Earth is all of ecology, everything. Um, so it's a bigger, richer, more robust thing that is being simulated. Um, and, and and that's reflected by the much more big, complex uh, objectives that you're trying to do as opposed to, oh, I just need to do the most of this, that, or the other thing. I mean, um, in, to, to really do well in um, in Earth, you have to put much more of a determined eye towards hitting those objectives. Uh, and uh, at the same time, the effects you can find on cards are much bigger and robust because you're not just making three lines. Instead, you're building a grid. And in that grid, you may or not may not be caring about adjacency in individual rows and columns. Um, or uh, And also, the fact that, yes, you have an engine in that, and it's one big gigantic engine where the, engine, where the three individual engines are all small smushed up into one engine. And when you run an engine, you're still running like a, a particular sub-engine, but the uh, the order of the cards in the engine is much more uh, much less fluid because, hey, once I put a card down, unless I got a power to move them around, I, you know, I've got to deal with, okay, I got to put make this happen before this. The individual engine, the, the engines that you build in Wingspan are, more, are, are less about, okay, within a given thing, hey, let's make sure this uh, engine can really dovetail with itself. Let's just make sure it outputs so that another engine can do well. That's good play in Wingspan. In Earth, an individual engine that's smooshed into this big mega engine, uh, so you're trying to do all this logistical puzzling out there, um, it has to work within itself. It has to feed itself, as opposed to an engine feeding another engine. And I think, at the end of the day, Earth is a more challenging game, when it boils right down to it, because you are juggling so much more. And Which is why I don't think Earth could ever ever, ever function as a, not a gateway game, but, you know, there are, to me, a gateway game, when I say a gateway game, I'm talking about a game that, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, novices could play only with other novices and learn and play the game themselves. That's a true gateway, but I'll admit, I often equate, I often say gateway game, and what I mean by that is, hey, this is a game that true novices could play if they had a gamer geek to help them through. And that's what Wingspan is. I could probably play Wingspan with just about anybody who has an interest in birds. And try, I mean, I could, I could get Mandy Patinkin through it. I totally could. I apologize to his son-in-law or whoever it was who was trying to teach that game on Twitter uh, that every I assume everybody saw. But I, I think Wingspan can work well as a, uh, a, a gateway tool that gamer hardcore gamers can use to bring their friends and family in in a way that Earth could never be used that way. But ultimately, that's part of why I like Earth more as well. So I guess there, there's a few comparisons. Alrighty. Continuing on. As well, I would like to pick up a few of your favorite games... Uh, Endless Winter, Come Together, and Eleven. I think all three have been criminally overlooked. Is that true? That's a you know what? I don't think oh, Endless Winter. I mean, Endless Winter was was at the top of the board game geek hotness for quite a while. But I do agree, Come Together. I don't know why. I mean, that was that was in my top ten games of 2022, and it seems like nobody paid attention to it, even though it's absolutely phenomenal. It does so many really cool things. This it's a it's a basically. Uh, trying to put together Woodstock simulation, where you're a manager trying to put together your best Woodstock-esque multi-day rock festival in the summer of love. And it's absolutely phenomenal because of the, of the positive ways that players interact with each other and piggyback off each other. 
And then 11... I feel like that got a fair bit of hype around it, but maybe not. Anyway, though, I think all three of these were criminally overlooked. I don't know whether the theme, Woodstock and Soccer, and timing, Endless Winter coming out um, long after Dune Imperium and Lost the Ruins of Arnak, really impacted the popularity. But I was able to get all of them for well over 25% off an already discounted online price. If you were to have the time and explore one more, which would you start with? Oh, okay, so you were never even talking... Okay, uh... Uh, the question was something completely different. I mean, oh, that was an interesting question, too. I'm surprised by that uh, about Endless Winter. I, yeah. But, I mean, heck, hey, it's hard to... It's, it's hard to argue with the uh, bargain basement clearance sale as being a reflection of just how uh, how impactful a game was at the end of the day. Um, I, I suspect, if anything, maybe Endless Winter and Eleven, because they garnered so much explosive interest when they were crowdfunding that maybe the stores you bought from mistakenly thought, oh, that interest will continue. And while they were both, I think, very well received, at the end of the day, they were not true breakthrough hits like they maybe first looked at when they were crowdfunding. And so maybe, um, you know, they were, um, you know, retailers overestimated their potential popularity. Would it have helped Endless Winter to have come out the the same winter as Arnak and Dune. That'd be interesting. I mean, personally, me, I was talking because I played them all at the same time. And I would say Endless Winter, its Kickstarter, or maybe it was GamePound, I don't remember, benefited from crowdfunding at the same time that two other worker placement um, deck builders were all in the uh, the zeitgeist of Board Game Geek. But anyway, regardless, they're lower price, so let's take it. And it's just really interesting. I'm surprised by that. But regardless, your real question is what would, you know, I can tell you. Of those three, if I could spend time with only one of them, I'll be honest, it's not going to be 11 because at the end of the day, while both Jen and I were really impressed by it, and I would like to spend more time with it because while I don't care about professional sports at all, in fact, I kind of find professional sports to be a thematic turnoff, I still thought it was a very, very good business simulation about managing human resources and all of that. And I, and I would like to experiment with that more. I just, then there's also this whole thing about the game, you know, the, the, the football that I don't care about. So for that reason alone, it would go to the bottom. Uh, and the thing is, I, yeah, it's going to have to be uh, come. Cause if you got endless winter with all the extra stuff, there is so much stuff in endless winter. If, if endless winter had just come with a regular games worth of stuff, like come together did, I think there's no choice about it. It would 100% be come together. But both Endless Winter and Eleven were big games with ton. Each of these games came with the equivalent of three expansions worth of content that you don't have to play with, and you probably shouldn't play with until you played the base game several times. Whereas Come Together was just a base game, so they have an unfair advantage in that regard. If I were to um, uh, evaluate them just on their base game, it would probably be Come Together, Endless Winter, and Eleven. But based on oh. Hey, you gave me... I got the game and I got three expansions worth of stuff at the same time. Then I'll probably want to play with that more. So I would go with Endless Winter first, Come Together second, and Eleven last. And again, Eleven more because of the theme. Okay, next up. Joseph says, I just watched your latest run-through of Astronauts, and it actually got me thinking a lot about Marvel Champions. Both games, and by extension, Aeon's End, offer a cooperative boss battler, but differ in meaningful ways. With these games in mind, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the following. A. Which experience do you enjoy more and why? 
fighting a boss with pre-constructed decks, uh, Marvel Champions, where you do all your deck building offline, or a small deck that you build throughout the game. That's the Aeons in Astronauts. For me, it's a no-brainer. 100%. It is one of my least favorite things to do in all of gaming, deck construction. I would much rather do it in-game. Honestly, it's one of my least favorite things about Marvel Champions is the fact that to do well, you have to spend a lot of time and effort carefully. Oh, should I put in one more Nick Fury? I already have. Do I need two? Do I take this out? I mean, I I, I find that to be tedious in the extreme. So much so uh, that my approach to Marvel Champions has always been there is an amazing, amazing thread in Geek List on Board Game Geek that is not hard to find where um, one mega fan of Marvel Champions has taken it upon himself to, assuming you have bought every piece of Marvel Champions content that there is, to make idealized set decks for each hero. So you can just, hey, every time you play, the variety doesn't come from what's in that deck, but it comes from what combination of heroes and villains you fight. And I love that, and I've totally relied on that. So, um, for me, there's no choice about it. I would much rather make that creative process of trying to find cards that combo well together to be part of the gameplay itself because then it feels like a fun game rather than doing it outside the game where to me it has always felt like a chore. It is one of the reasons I, I stopped playing Magic the Gathering back in the uh, 90s as I was really into it. And Jen and I, we played at tournament level in uh, Seattle. But eventually I just got so sick and tired of it. And mostly the tournaments I played were all, oh, what were they called? Um, sealed deck tournaments. Where, you, oh, hey, look, here's a couple of cards. Just throw something together and do what you can. It's about the game, not about the deck building. Uh, so yeah, for me, it's a no-brainer. Question B. Do I think Marvel Champions would be improved by implementing the turn order system used in um, Aeon's End and Astro Knights? Why or why not? Would Astro Knights uh, Aeon's End be less of a game without this system? That's a really good question. Wow, I like that question a lot. I, I, I certainly like that system. The system being that uh, you know, in this boss building deck. In, in this boss battling deck game, deck builder, there is a deck of cards that determines turn order, and it gets shuffled up, and you never know what order everybody's going to get to fight. And so, hey, maybe we get lucky and we get a few turns back to back, but and but then the boss is going to hiss, or maybe it's a bit more spread out. I attack the boss attack, Jen attacks the boss attack. You know, I mean, it can go in a lot of different ways, and I love that unpredictability. It's so great. So, how would that would that, would I appreciate that? I mean, Marvel Champions, I think, would have to go through... Or would it have to go through a significant switcheroo to do that? So much of the gameplay... Well, see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, There's not much randomness in Aeon's End and Astro Knights. There's a little bit of unpredictability in what kind of things the boss is going to throw at you, but you know what all the things are. But once a boss has put a thing out there, it's just it's, it's never going to roll dice. It's just going to do this consistent thing that you can anticipate and predict. And it's a deck builder where I have total control over the order of the cards in my deck. So I know roughly what order I'm going to get cards in. I know when I'm going to have a, good, a strong move and a weak move and all of that. So Aeon's End desperately needs... That um, r- that confounding randomizing factor of hey you know what the biggest thing that'll surprise you is not you know the random card draws it's uh, of, you know of what the boss is going to throw you or what you're going to pull out of your deck it is the um, 
It's it's what order you get to go. Yeah, everything is perfect except oh no, the boss is going again. No, and that means they're going to destroy the thing I thought I was going to use. And oh, that means I got to do something else now. I mean, and that's what that's what makes Aeon's in special. Now here's the thing. Uh, with all that said, now that I've articulated that, I'm going to say, oh yeah, baby, Marvel Champions would definitely benefit from that because here's the thing. Marvel Champions has an unpredictability engine built in too. And it's not the fact that I don't know what order I'm going to get my cards. Although Marvel Champions is, of course, much more unpredictable in, in my deck. Um, and uh, Or, you know, the what, the what the Red Skull is going to throw at me or whatever. The biggest thing that is unpredictable is Marvel Champions has the equivalent of dice rolls. When, uh, when a bad guy attacks me, I don't know exactly how bad they're going to hurt. And I have to make a decide. I have to decide before the attack if I'm going to block, and then after that, I draw another card and add some random number to the end result or some effect that undoes what I chose or something like that. And don't get me wrong, that's fine. It's something I have always accepted in Marvel Champions, but at the same time, I have also it's it, that is actually my by far my least favorite thing. I hate that even more than having to do deck construction between games. And I wish Marvel Champions didn't have it. Because to me, it's it's kind of cheap. And honestly, but it is a way to confound players. Because if it wasn't there, you could math out everything. And the game would lose some of its zest and surprise. I think the randomizing effect of what they do in um, Aeon's End and Astronauts is a much more interesting and compelling uh, approach. And so... If you if you introduce that, I mean, if you removed the randomizer of combat in Marvel Champions and replaced it with a randomizer of turn order, yeah, and you know, in the turn order between the man, I could see you know that deck growing over time. That um, you know, the boss and every minion, you know, the more minions are out there, the more of the minions are in there, so they would attack and unpredict. Oh man, I think that would be a lot. It'd be very unwieldy because you can have a lot of minions out there. Maybe it'd be every type of minion, all grunts attack, or you know, I don't know something. But honestly, I think that would make Marvel Champions better, for my taste anyway. Alrighty, and then if the designers of Astro Knights and Aeon's Inn made a version of their game with Marvel content, would you prefer it over Marvel Champions? Why or why not? Oh yeah, definitely, totally, 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 totally. For everything, I mean, you, dr- you know, drilled right down in on the single most important. Um, or one of, anyway, the biggest defining elements that separates these two games that on the surface are very, very similar. And so I would much rather have that approach because it would get rid of one of the things I dislike most. And at the same time, because the developers of Marvel Champions have decided to throw away wholesale the thing that truly made their game special, the uh, fundamental dichotomy of the, the tension between the hero's heroic lives and their personal lives. They've just thrown that away wholesale. I'm, I'm assuming that's something that the, um, that the uh, Astronauts and Aeons in people would not put in. So it's not like we'd be losing anything because Marvel Champions already lost what made it special. So hey, if it's not going to do the truly unique, original, innovative thing, then why not uh, at least get rid of its worst thing and replace it with something better? So yeah, I, I, I think that'd be a total no-brainer for me. Okay. And that's all the gaming questions I've got, but we're not done, folks. Hang on. We'll be right back for Jen. Okay, folks, for the next few game questions, Jen is here. Hello. There she is. Hi. 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 Oh, hello. Oh, there's the top I can't of her quite head. get over there, but 
Hello. Yep. <laughs> All right. So we're continuing. Jack asks, or Jack points out, that I've mentioned before that when we do move back to England, Jen wants to reduce the collection down to around 50 games. <laughs> I think if I make you do that, you have to make me, like, go down to 50 pounds of glass rods. <laughs> and that's not happening, so never mind. <laughs> but anyway, we'll continue on with the thought exercise. Yes, all right. Uh, how would we do that? Would we just would take... Be, oh, could I have 50 boxes of glass rods? <laughs> That would be fine. I'm sure we can work something out. Oh, I, we're, we're taking it all. Yeah. Uh, how in the world would we do that? Will we only take the top 50 ranked? Uh, would we want some kind of games for certain situations, scenario analysis, or other metrics like rarity, size, etc.? Would any of that matter? Uh, oh. <laughs> is it a moot point because you think you can convince Jen to up the limit? And also, thoughts from Jen on this process. Jen, are there games you would want to keep for certain, like Agricola? Yes, of course there are. Well, first of all, do you remember saying this? I don't. I, mean, I think maybe he's thinking of, like, if we were going to be in the RV, we could only take maybe 50 games with us. Yeah, and that would probably would be the case. For space yes. reasons. Yeah, if we were to... Well, okay, that's actually an interesting question, too. I mean... Uh, you know, we, we bought an RV recently. We just got back a few months ago from a two-month trip. That was a good test. Yep. Uh, next, we're going to be doing a six-month on-the-road trip. I think it's going to be five months, but you say six. I'm just going to round up to six. Okay, I think it's going to be five. I'm going to round up to a half year, uh, which is you know a big, big jump. And uh, for in my head, I'm thinking, well, if that test works, then we can just move on into the thing full-time. Yes. And I can go back to the way it was when I was a kid, and I grew up on a 42-foot steel hull sailboat my dad <laughs> built with his bare hands. Yes, but um, our, our thing is only 30 feet. Yes, but there's only two of us. There's not true, uh, yes. mom, dad, brother, brother, and a gigantic uh, German shepherd and a small wisty corgi to <laughs> squeeze in there. There's just the Wiggles! two of us and two yep, good old wigs. Um, but anyway, though, uh, this is about moving back to England where, okay, for the record, we do. If we move back to England, we do not have to reduce down to fifty. When we moved from Malta, are you Malta, saying this is now the record? Well, yes, and this the, will be the, on. Yes. This is in perpetuity. This will live on for hundreds <laughs> of years as long as YouTube exists. People in the far flung future will say, "How did they choose?" Yes, they'll take a break from their um, you know perfect utopian society where there's no to say. Oh, what was it like back in the day when they can just <gasps> they replicate. had to limit themselves to fifty board games. Yep. Our entire world of you know socioeconomic order is built on everybody having at least five thousand board games in their house, or just replicating whatever you need. Yeah, of you course. Want it. Everybody just have. 3D printers and, you know, there's yeah, a, just, a recycle system. Yeah, recycle everything. Yeah. Hey, what do you want to play today? Oh, let's play that old game from the uh, from the 20th century, Agricola. Okay, push the button. They print it all out. Yep. What colors would you done. like your meeples to be? Yeah, and then they just drop it back in the bin and just, oh, man. That would be awesome. I can't wait for that future. Yep, and then you wouldn't have to worry about your cardboard molding or your... Yep. Um, there's been, like, acrylic things that have, like, cracked open, right? Like, little acrylic markers that... The acrylic didn't we cure have, right Yes, yes. Oh, my gosh, you're right. Yeah, that happened with our copy of Quadropolis. You're right. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. But, but your glass will still be fine. Yeah. It will not mold. Jack didn't ask crack. about a perfect board game future. Instead, ah. uh, so uh, we are not... Although, uh, uh, when we moved from Malta to the U.S. almost five years ago now, right? Did you uh, Five years out? and a day. Was it just yesterday was our anniversary? I think it was... Was this, it was uh, this Wednesday. week? I'm not wearing my watch. Yeah, yeah. I'm watchless at the moment. But anyway... So when we did that, I mean, I think I was up to around 400 games around that time. And I believe before we uh, loaded up all the containers, I got rid of like 
I want to say like 150 or 200 games. So I, I didn't quite cut the uh, thing in half. Would we do the same thing? Or would we just say, mm-hmm. to heck, let's take it all? Well, our English house is a lot smaller than this. That is true. <clears throat> so, um, and, our, and our American house is incredibly small by American standards. And our English house is even smaller. That yeah, is true. I think our English house is about 1,000 square feet all told. For folks who are wondering, what our English house? We lived in England for a decade. And when we left England, we did not sell the house we lived in. We just opened it up for rentals. And it's been renting ever since. Yep. But we do intend to move back into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think we would have to get rid of some just because there's no way all of this would fit into, uh, I assume the basement room would be the game room. Yeah. 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 Maybe you could. I mean, I mean, you can imagine shelves like this just going all around that basement room. Well, there, one wall has a door and one wall has a window mm-hmm. and one wall has like a chimney breast. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's a nice, easy square box to put. So you're saying we do have to get down to 50 games. I'm not saying 50, but when I When think... we last lived there, we had about 50 games. Yeah. And they're still up in the attic. Yes. Or there's a bunch of them still up in the attic anyway. That is Because there was there some that didn't few. make it to Malta, and yep. then we just never got back to them. Yep. So maybe those would be worth $10,000. I don't... The board games generally don't work that way. Oh, darn it. Well, anyway. Uh, they're not like magic cards. Not magic cards? No. Um, so... Uh, I mean, what would be your thought process for if we had to get rid of some games to make the international move back a little bit more financially viable and also bear in mind we have a lot less storage space over there and we'd have a lot easier time getting rid of games while we're in the States than we would over mm, there. Yeah. What would be your thought process? Don't say process? getting rid of. That just makes me feel like nobody wants them. Say rehoming. Rehoming them. Fair enough. Yes, All that's right. better. Um, so I think, what would our process be? I think we'd just go through... I mean, you've, you're already doing really good about um, sending on to the Dice Tower West Library. That's correct, yes. Um, games regularly. So it wouldn't be <clears throat> quite as big. What, how many do you think we have in here? Uh, there's around 400. Around 400. <laughs> that appears to be your, your set point. Yep, yeah. Well, I, I'm try, I try to keep it around 300, but it's, it's hard. Well, it's not your fault. There's oh, so many great games out it there. It is a good time to be a board gamer. Um, yeah, I don't know. I would. I guess we'd have to. I think we'd have to get rid of at least rehome. We'd have to rehome down to probably two hundred games. And would you have anything to say about that? You pretty much just left it to me. I yeah. Mean, there were too many other things to worry about when we were moving from Malta to here to for you to weigh in on. Well, we can't get rid of that one. I yeah. mean, you just relied on my knowledge of what you love. Yep. But Jackass. I mean, are there are there? Would you have anything to say? Are there any things that? must have or is there anything you worried that i would not get do you know what i think you know me so well that i would be totally comfortable with you doing it all okay yeah and honestly unless i remembered about it i would never miss it i mean there's very few (sighs) games that i would say hey do you remember that one game and then you'd have to go well was it this or this or this because i give these kind of cryptic clues yeah about well, it had purple markers and it had a (laughs) it was a space game and um there was something about you know a mangala or mm. something and then you have to figure out from those three clues <gasps> yep. what game is it yeah let's see first of all she meant mangala because there's no such thing as a mangala <laughs> <laughs> i was pretty close you're you're i'm sure you're pretty proud of yourself look i'm using the right term uh, maybe i should Just have one with a off. spanish accent it was there a mangala go. yes um yeah okay so i saved this one for you but you don't really have much to say about it uh no, I think I trust you implicitly. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, when, when we did this before, it was 
Uh, I, I guess it was more than anything else about ranking. I mean, that's not entirely true. I did get rid of some games that we really liked because they were really big boxes. And hey, you know what? I could get rid of one big box game that we really like, and that means we have room for four small, small box games that we really like. And yeah. I'd rather... I, I was just trying to keep my numbers up as much as possible. And I imagine I would go through that process again. So, sorry, Anachrony Super Mega Box. It probably would not make the trip back, which would be sad, uh, as an example. And who knows, maybe not Endless Winter. I think, yeah, the first castle. But no, not my Castles of Burgundy Special Edition. This will go with me everywhere. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it would be it would be a combination of pretty much everything you talked about, Jack. He, he sleeps with that, by the way. It's right, right next to him on the bed. Just no, kidding. I do not. Uh, <laughs> but I have not found a space to put it on the shelf. And that's the thing. I mean, there's no room on these shelves. I'm going to have to get rid, because, because this showed up in the mail the other day, I am now going to have to get rid of like three or four games well, to make room for this. But you have Castles of Burgundy that you can... That's one. Yes. So. Um, yes, it's bad. It's right there. No, you know what? No, Burgundy is already off the shelf. I got rid of it from the last thing that went to the Dice Tower West Library because I knew this was coming. Oh. So, yeah, I mean, more games are going to have to die to make room for... Don't say that! To be rehomed to make room for Burgundy Special Edition. And that's that's just something I deal with on a monthly basis. There, you know, I mean, these shelves are full and they are a self-imposed limit. And the reality is if there's a game that's going to go on these shelves, something else has to come off. And it would just be a more intense version of that when we move. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe if you can't get down from here, then that's okay. We can, we can figure it out. We can figure it out. Because this is not like the... Well, I'll, not that we're taking these shelves. I don't think we're going to move Ikea stuff across the ocean. We'll just buy new Ikea stuff when we get well, there. Well, I mean, these do come back apart. They are Ikea. And then they just flat pack down to nothing. Yeah, but the, it's the weight. Remember? The weight, you're right. That's what it, it would is. probably be cheaper to actually buy new ones to buy in England. Yeah. yeah. Not, and maybe them. not this. Maybe go back to the bookcase ones. Yeah, yeah. Because those are a bit more efficient. Yep. Okay. Well, let's see. I think there's one more game question for you, Honey Pie. Ah. Joseph says, Richard's mentioned a few times that we both used to be heavily involved in Magic the Gathering. What play style did we most enjoy and what do we miss most from the game? Oh, I would say uh, we did get into deck building for a while there, but that just was very complicated. And so I think what we, what I remember enjoying most anyway was um, sealed deck tournaments. Yes, that we, we played. Uh, we, we actually were... Minor players in the sealed deck tournament scene in oh, Seattle, Washington. I'm sure very minor. Yeah, players. I won one once. I came in. Uh, yeah. Oh. Remember, you you were knocked out halfway through, and then you went home. What? You, you didn't stick around, and Did further, I? and I made you know made it all the way to the end and the big final confrontation, and and I won the thing. That was pretty cool. That's that was like very a, cool. I'm sorry, I didn't stick around for that. Yeah. Well, there must have been you probably something. didn't think I was going to win. <laughs> Uh, I don't think it was that. It was probably there was something going on that I had to... I'm sure. I'm Although sure. I was in a tournament that day. You wouldn't think I would have yeah. scheduled... Those were back in the days when I had a bit more... F Although I didn't really have free time. <laughs> I've never had free time. I've been a busy person. Yes. Anyway, would you agree? Would I agree what? That the sealed deck tournament? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's... I, I, we, ne we only ever participated in sealed deck tournaments. Because, yeah, but... I mean, me, I hated... Always, that was my least favorite thing. Even more than the direct attacking and fighting, which I was never crazy about. But the thing that I really hated about Magic the Gathering was the process of trying to design decks. Mm. I mean, I, I think you got into it more than I did. I think I did too, yeah, if I remember. But um, yeah, but even after we dis after we discovered the sealed deck tournament um, idea, I think we started just doing that at home, except for the decks we'd already made. Yeah. To play with, but I think we just would get into a, a sealed deck and, and just play that mm -hmm. 
because then it's just it's nice and easy and fairly balanced and yeah. yeah, I don't know if it's balanced or not, but um, you know, it's I it, yeah, it was about as far as we wanted to go with that. I mean, anything else? Do you remember? Do you, you remember how the game plays? Yeah, mainly I remember the Tims. <coughs> the what? The oh, Tims. the Tims. Yes, it was something you could uh, you could tap it and do a point of damage to anything. Uh, if I recall, I think that was Prodigal Sorcerer was yeah. the actual card name. For some reason, everybody Why called we call it, it Tim. Tim? I, it was just a magic thing. Mm. I assume it probably is still referred to as a Tim, or if unless it's been nerfed. Somebody should let us know if Tim is still Tim. I, I imagine Tim is still a thing. I bet it was. He was probably like somebody at Watsy or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but are, you don't really have any fond memories of the gameplay, or man, are, do, do you have any desire to go back? Because for a while, our niece and nephew were hardcore into mm. Magic the Gathering. Yes. Very, very hardcore. I don't know if they still are at all. No, that was probably three or four years ago, actually. Yep. And I one time when they on. visited, they really wanted to play Magic with me. And I'm like, I've got 400 games. Every one of these games is superior to Magic the Gathering. Uh, will you not want to play any? All right. And I played it, and, and oh my god. Magic is so ancient and so rickety. And, uh, you know, so behind the times in terms of actual what, you know, I mean, it has been so improved on by so many games. It's just, you know, right off the bat, as soon as I played, I got mana screwed. And then the second time we played, I got the opposite. I got no mana. And, you know, even with mulligans, it just, I could, it was just, I, you know, and I have to admit, I've, I'm sorry, Zane. I was a bit surly the whole time. It's like, really? You think this is a good game? Would you like me to show you one of 400 games that are infinitely superior to this experience because, you know, they're not... Yeah. Well, and Nate had been taught I tried not to completely well. crush all uh, his enthusiasm for the thing, but, yeah, I was just like, oh. I'm sorry, what impact? Well, and they hadn't been taught correctly. They're like they're. Oh, that's right. Yes, there were a couple of teachers. No, no, that didn't happen that. when they were here. You had played with them. You had gone down and visited them. Ah. Like uh, I think a year prior. And, and they I... said, "Aunt Jen, you used to play magic. Let's play magic." And you're like, "Oh, is this how the kids are playing magic?" Uh, that's right. You literally had to call me call... on the phone yep, and I said, my... "This is not how it played <laughs> back in the day." Am I remembering it wrong? And I'm like, no, no, your 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 niece and nephew have been taught incorrectly. Yeah. And so yeah, I forget what they were doing. They were doing something that just made things much easier and simpler. Yeah. Um, and maybe that was taught to them because they're kids. There's uh, a kid variant yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so yep, that's, don't miss anything from the game. No, me either. Okay. Well, folks, we are done with the gaming questions. And now, if you hang on, we'll be right back with the personal questions and answers right after this. Okay, everybody, if you've stuck around this long, we're going to be doing the personal questions and answers now. Got a whole bunch to go through, starting with Andrus, who says, In the last episode, I was talking about how great America was uh, and, and the first half of America's history with open borders. Go-getters and make-it-happeners. Do I think the Native Americans are agreeing with you? This is a very good counterpoint. Uh, for me, European with vague American knowledge who thinks the 1500s to 1850s uh, is the American Wild West. Uh, that was surprising to hear. And why are you later saying that immigrants in America are needed to do jobs we don't want, i.e. Um, equals to the current population? I sounded like a MAGA person. Oh, no. Oh, dear. Well, that was certainly not my intent. And yeah. I, Andres, I think those are actually fairly good counterpoints. You have to bear in mind, when I get going, I'm just you know, riffing off the top of my head. But first of all, yes, entirely right. Um, that was a very... Um, Insensitive. Uh, you know, an insensitive observation because, yeah, it was certainly great 
for the United States as a new country to get an unfettered, you know, fire hose of immigration from around the world to come here, everybody pursuing their life streams and, you know, literally building the America we know today. Uh, America would not have been anywhere near as successful as a country if if right from day one, they, we had had all the ridiculous anti-immigrant sentiment that we do now. And to be fair, there was plenty of anti-immigrant sentiment because <laughs> whoever was the latest uh, you know, immigrants oh, yeah. du jour uh, were coming in, everybody who was already there was like, ah, these new filthy immigrants from this other country, uh, they're, we're good, but they're, scum. I mean, it's always been there, but it's a relatively recent thing, only within the last century or century and a half that America has really started to, you know, really, just when the last century that America has started to um, close off immigration and it's because those voices of oh those dirty foreigners finally got the upper hand and that's a real shame uh, but all that put aside you are entirely right uh, you know the American story completely railroads um, you know the endless hardship and suffering uh, you know and complete horrific unfair treatment to the the native americans the the indigenous people of this land that we just constantly kept screwing over and over and over and over and over and have never done enough uh you know to repay them for reparations for you know all the hardship that we brought on them so you're you're entirely right and that is the other half of the coin that is very very important and should not be forgotten i completely agree and um uh, you know the the other half um at the at the end of the day, there uh, that was referring specifically to, um, you know, w within the last couple of years, there has been this big hue and cry that there are, you know, there's too many jobs. Nobody wants to take literally uh, take all these jobs in every small town in America. There are help wanted signs everywhere, and um, you know, small and you know, middle class, uh, you know, employers are constantly saying people don't want to take these jobs, even as we're raising salaries and whatnot. Uh, you know, people have decided, yeah, um, we, we, we need better treatment. And yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, should definitely treat things, uh, you know, treat employees better. I'm definitely pro-union and all that. But at the same token, there have always been, um, there's always been jobs in our society that the mainline American society does not want to do. And I mean, more, no, you know, nowhere is that better pointed out than the agricultural sector. My grandfather um, was actually a union organizer for migrant workers in California, you know, trying to, you know, ens enshrine uh, stronger, you know, labor protection laws for folks who every year would come up from Mexico, do all this incredibly backbreaking, horrible work that was dangerous, um, you know, for, for, for meager uh, amounts of money, um, you know, and then at the end of the season would go back home, uh, you know, and take that money back south of the border. And, you know, he spent his life fighting for better, you know, work quality for them. I mean, I grew up my, with my mom telling stories about how she and her father, you know, they were became migrant as well, uh, not to work the fields, although they did work the fields also, but to actually travel around and fight for rights, you know, in the uh, California legislature. So that's kind of the background I come from, and I do think uh, that migrant workers should be treated with the same fairness and respect as you know Native American workers. But I'll be honest, Native I, American workers, or, or Native American workers, but yeah, you know, 
uh, American workers, you know, of of any background. Yes. Um, you know, you know, everybody should be treated equally well. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm a big proponent of getting back to open borders. Um, Me too. You know, uh, I mean, quite frankly. Uh, closed borders are fundamentally. I mean, it's it's weird. Uh, people who tend to be um, you know anti-immigration are also scions of capitalism. Capitalism can solve all problems, and yet closed borders are the antithesis of a capitalist idea. If the market is the great equalizer, then bring people in and let the market figure it out. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm pretty anti-capitalist too, while at the same time being very open borders. But open borders um, is what fueled our capitalist society and got us to where we are today. So, no, I mean, I, I'm not just talking only about migrant workers to pick the fields. Yes, bring in migrant doctors and migrant university professors and um, you know uh, migrants who want to start new businesses, who have uh, new exciting ideas. Study after study after study shows that um, in places where, or you know, in countries where immigration is embraced and allowed, that brings dynacism to the overall society. Um, you know, the number of, I remember I heard us in a podcast recently, uh, in, um, you know, the, the higher the percentage of, of immigrants in a given population, the higher the percentage of patents that are filed because you're just bringing in a bigger, greater brain trust. People who are are ambitious people who are driven, people who are brilliant, um, you know, getting access to the opportunities to push everybody forward. Yep. The fundamental argument against immigration that oh they're just here to steal jobs and mooch off public assistance is a lie, a one hundred percent lie. And I know this from my own past, from my family's past. But it is one, it is a lie that ultimately serves the interests of the rich and powerful. Um, and you know, it's just gotten, uh, you know, you know, generations, it's, it's not even in our modern time, anti-immigration sentiment in America has been there from the beginning. And it is a fundamental uh, tenet of tribalism to try to find ways to separate us. And if there are people who can benefit from, you know, the, uh, the hoi polloi being separated into industry. So they fight amongst each other instead of all grouping together to fight for better wealth distribution. Well, that's in their best interest, and that's the reality of what it is. Yep. So yes, rest assured, I am very anti-MAGA because I am incredibly pro-immigration of all stripes because there is no choice about it. It makes the world better for everyone. Do you yeah. have anything to add to that? Anybody? No. Okay. Well, then continuing, Andrew says... You are anti-tribalism, tribalist. Oh, I like that we're getting capital Y's for you. It's like uh, yes. capital G for God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are you glad that you and conservatives have one common bipartisan goal, uh, which is anti-tribalism? Well, I'm going to yeah. interesting see where this is going to go. Because, no, the Republican Party is incredibly, ridiculously tribalist. But let's continue. Uh, probably the first problem that will be solved. You both want to get... Uh, you both want... To get rid of mentioning of slavery, I, Andrews, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I am. You don't want it to be mentioned in board games. I, I don't want it mentioned in board games, Andrews. That's entirely in a. That's that's. I don't know where you're getting that either. I, I assume. Okay, let me finish the sentence. Uh, Andrews continues. Uh, Andrews believes I don't want slavery to be mentioned in board games. Other people are removing it from history books, schools, etc. Um, Andrews. Dude, go back and watch my video for um, 
uh, Underground Railroad or Endeavor, I think you will find you have got it wrong. I am very, very pro board games taking on heavy, meaty topics. I can only assume you were referring to the fact that I was the driving force behind getting slavery out of five tribes. And you're taking that way out of context. The problem with slavery in Five Tribes was Five Tribes was not a game about deep, weighty sociopolitical issues. It was not actually, it did not have an opinion. It just threw them in in a very gratuitous, grotesque way into a game that was basically, you know, uh, you know, a family game, they said, oh, let's just literally put black men in chains, head bowed, and completely take all agency away from them. It was literally grotesque the way that it was implemented in that game. Um, and yeah, I am definitely opposed to taking a blithe or you know, saying, hey, you know what? Slavery's not so bad. Because the game had nothing to say about slavery. The game actually, um, if anything, glorified slavery. Uh, and that was terrible. But in games that actually engage with the subject matter, I am all for that. I think that is uh, a very... I mean, I think games, I've talked about this many times on the podcast, are a viable art form. And art can be used to investigate and drill down on problems of society. And that includes issues of slavery and colonization and exploitation and, and you know um, any you know any topic um, so yeah I, I, you, you, you've totally misunderstood my particular perspective and I very much disagree with the current drive from the uh, right to ban books left right and center because they make the right uncomfortable to be reminded of the atrocities that we have committed to um, marginalized members of our society so no I don't uh, yeah so you don't agree with me? I don't... I, well, you don't agree with what you think I said, but rest assured, you got me wrong, buddy. So, by the same token, I don't disagree with Shut Up and Sit Down about colonization in the Santa Maria game. I have no idea what Shut Up and Sit Down has said about Santa Maria. Um, I... But, I mean, go back and watch my run-through for Santa Maria, Andres, because, again, you are fundamentally misunderstanding my point about that game. I've talked about this at great length, though. I've talked about this on the podcast. So I, feel, I kind of feel like you're picking and choosing, but I'll give you the benefit of the doubt and say, well, okay, you just... I, over the last decade, I have produced over 2,000 run-throughs. I get it if you have not seen everything. But anyway, let's continue on. I played uh, Santa Maria only once, and I didn't see anything that glorified colonization or normalized ridiculed suffering. Then you weren't paying attention, Andres. The entire point of Santa Maria is to satirize, to make fun of colonization. The colonizers in Santa Maria earn happy faces. Um, that is a direct commentary. To be fair, and you know, and this is, I think, I, I appreciate what the developers of Santa Maria were trying to do. They were trying not to glorify, but to satirize the um, colonizers by saying, well, yeah, look, we're getting ours, Jack, and we're turning all the natives into blithe, happy-face um, automatons because it, it kind of abstracts, it, it replaces the atrocities with a happiness meter. Hey, the more we, it doesn't say it, commit horrific atrocities uh, that I won't even re repeat what all they are here, our happiness meter goes up. And, you know, as we convert the indigenous people to our own cultures, they become implicitly happy. They were unhappy and now they're happy. That is a searing indictment of colonization. 
But to be fair uh, to people who are very uncomfortable with Santa Maria, it is very, very easy to misunderstand, to misinterpret, because it is a subtle dig. And, I mean, you have very clearly misunderstood it, although you're misunderstanding it in a completely different way. So, while I respect what Santa Maria was doing, I do think, at the end of the day, it was a failed experiment, trying to use the platform of board games to actually take a look at the cold, hard realities, but doing it in this kind of subtle, intellectual, clever way ultimately doesn't work because it's very easy to misinterpret, as you have very clearly done. Because the game has a lot to say. Anyway, I don't see how sweeping dark history under uh, the rug will help anybody. Nobody on our side of the table is arguing that, Andrus. That is 100% the, um, within the confines of the far right who ban books left, right, and center because it makes them uncomfortable because they don't want their children to be ashamed of what their forefathers have done. That is the very definition of uh, you know, trying to silence history and say the suffering of others doesn't matter. Only the suffering of us matters. And it's, it's horrible. And I am not arguing for that. I am always arguing for, yes, let's take, um, you know, sharp, uh, pointed looks and let's not turn our heads away, but let's do it in a meaningful and respectful way. Let's actually involve, the, um, in the development of these things, the people whose story we are trying to tell, instead of telling it on their behalf. And, I mean, while I believe the uh, makers of Santa Maria had very good intentions, and I respect and appreciate what they were trying to do, at the end of the day... They could have done it much better. And, I mean, I love the fact that, you know, on the board game, you know, somebody did recently ask, uh, I forget if it was Isla for Christian, you know, the developers of the game, hey, boy, I'd love to see a retake of this at some point in the future, and said, hey, watch this space. So it'd be great for that game to come back. Um, you know, and whether they want to do it in a more interesting, inclusive way, like, again, look at the difference between the original Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico 1893 that plays the exact same game, but tells a very, very different story that lifts up the marginal and the oppressed rather than just erases the marginalized and oppressed, which is what you say, oh, Santa Maria doesn't have anything to say. That's because ultimately from your perspective and most people's perspective, it doesn't say anything at all. And if you're going to wade in these waters, if you want to tackle these topics, you can't do it in, a, you know, in an incomplete way. You have to do it in a meaningful and respectful way. You have to, you don't have to, but you should involve, um, you know, the parties that were negatively affected by this. So, yeah. Uh, Andrews, I'm sorry, buddy. You've got me completely wrong. Alrighty. But it looks like uh, that's all you have to say about that, because then we're going to change topics. Do you have anything to say about all this, honey pie? I think you summed it up well. Okie dokie. Then, continuing on, NVIDIA came out with a $400 PC video card called the 4060 Ti 8 gigs. Alrighty. Everybody is upset with those eight with those eight gigs of RAM because modern console games. Sorry, Honey Pie, we'll get through this. I'm sure you have nothing to say about this. I don't know what where he's going. Um, I'm gonna go get another cup. Of apparently, just gonna refill the tea, Andrews, while we talk about uh, Nvidia graphics cards. Modern consoles have 16 gigs of RAM utilized by CPU and GPU. Uh, CPU can use three gigs. GPU can use 13. And AAA console video game developers optimize their games for consoles with those 16 gigs. The problem is $400 video card on PC. Um, with very high settings, run out of available uh, GPU RAM, okay, and have very big performance hit. Uh, it leads to stuttering. 
Not good for pricey video card. NVIDIA says game developers should optimize for those 8 uh, gigabyte GPU users as they are a big majority of all PC gamers as it is enough uh, gigabytes if used the right way. Game developers say NVIDIA should put more RAM on the video cards if they uh, and they will want uh, 16 to 20 gigabytes of RAM soon. So, to your question... Are today's video game developers lazy? And by lazy, I mean consoles are the main priority of video game industry and PC gamers are less significant, not worth spending resources to improve their enjoyment of the game. Or should console games run easily on mid-tier uh, PC video cards without any optimization? And is NVIDIA to blame for this situation because of the produced card bottleneck? Andres, I knew none of this. I'm going to take this... Uh, even though you got some of my stuff wrong, this seems more about cold hard facts. Well, I'm just going to assume you are correct here. And as a very interesting story. Obviously, you're asking me because I was in the video game industry for uh, 20 years. And... My experience along these lines, we occasionally would develop games for multiple platforms at the same time. And it is a real challenge to do. And there is no two ways about it. Um, at any given time, I, when we were working on... Um, the second generation of 3D consoles, you know, Xbox versus PlayStation 2 versus GameCube. At the end of the day, if I recall correctly, and my memory is a bit fuzzy, the Xbox was by far the superior piece of hardware. But um, we ultimately focused our effort, and um, the PlayStation was in the middle, and the GameCube was the weakest in terms of specs, like what you're talking about here. We focused our attention um, on the middle platform, the PlayStation, making sure we can make the best game for that console, because... That is where over 50% of our target audience was. And um, what we should have done is downgrade everything to get the most out of the GameCube, right? Uh, and then say, hey, you know what? I mean, it works great on the GameCube. It works great on the others. But at the end of the day, that did not make financial sense for us because the majority of our audience was going to be on this platform. And to your question, if the majority of the audience is going to be on consoles, I cannot blame the developers at all for making that their primary uh, driving force. Because even though the video game industry is a huge, monster industry, people like to say it's bigger than Hollywood. It's not. There's certain ways you could look at it, but it's not as big as that. But it's still a monster enterprise. The reality is, for the overwhelming majority of people who work in the video game industry, it is rife. I mean, the video game industry is, is completely overflowing with layoffs and companies that go out of business all the time because if you don't have a super monster hit, um, you know, if you just, I mean, you know, a, a casual hit is not good enough to be able to pay the bills and companies go out of business left, right, and center. So they have to do everything they can to ensure their survival. I'm not talking about the big publishers, I'm not talking about electronic arts or you know. Ubisoft or whatever, I'm talking about the places I worked out, the little independent developers who actually do the work to make this, uh, you know, uh, to, to give you everything you want. And yeah, they, at the end of the day, they can put uh, PC gamers first, incur, you know, and, uh, and do one of two things. Again, if your specs are right. I'm, I'm going to assume you're correct, but I've seen this story a million times. They can compromise the quality of everything to hit the lowest common denominator. That does not make business sense if the lowest common denominator is also the smallest fraction of their potential audience. That just is not good business. And they have to make good business decisions to minimize the chance of going out of business and having to lay everybody off and, you know, and put families in risk and all of that. 
That's just not smart. So if I, I would not be surprised at all if at the end of the day, their console audience for the next big AAA Call of Duty or whatever is much bigger on PlayStation and Xbox and Switch, I guess. I don't know. Then it would be on PC. It just is. And so uh, it doesn't make any sense for them to put themselves at risk. Especially because here's the deal, Andres. Whatever the numbers are, I am confident there is nothing stopping a PC gamer from going into settings and saying, hey, you know what? I don't have to run at 1080p. This game is still just as much fun if I run in 720p or if I run with medium resolution uh, bitmaps uh, instead of high resolution bitmaps. I guarantee any game that you are complaining about that because of these uh, you know bit uh, you know gigabyte bottlenecks can be addressed because PC games, last I knew anyway, maybe things have changed, uh, give the user all the tools in the world to ensure they can have silky smooth frame rate nonstop. So there is nothing stopping you from enjoying the game. Because at the end of the day, it's about the gameplay, not the graphics, right? Um, if you're saying it's about the graphics and that's all you care about, then just go buy a console. Um, but really, you should be enjoying the game. The same thing happens in our board game. I mean... Uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, we, we we are pushing the envelope so much with uh, you know better looking game pieces, greater art, and all of that. But at the end of the day, that is secondary. It's the gameplay that's important. And you know, I mean, I I was a child. I grew I grew up in the seventies. I was born in nineteen sixty nine. I had a great time as a little kid playing those old LED football and baseball games, and I hated sports. I, you know, loved my Atari 2600. And for somebody to say, oh, this game is garbage because I can't play it in 4K, um, I have to play it in 720p to get smooth frame rate, I got the world's smallest violin playing for you right here. And it's really, that is people getting upset when there are much bigger issues in the world today. Just running at a slightly lower um, resolution or, or bitmap a bit depth is not going to make the game less fun. It still looks better than anything that I grew up. It looks better than anything that was made when I was still working in the industry. 15 years ago. So, um, are board game developers lazy? No. I can definitely confirm. Mm -hmm. Board And my wife can confirm, <laughs> too. Um, definitely not lazy. Yes. For the vast majority of my time as a video game developer, where I was making decisions like what you're talking about here, uh, an average work week for me was 60 hours a week straight. Never stopping. Ever. And that was just normal. And I would go for months and months and months, almost never coming home, sleeping on the floor. And that hasn't changed. Board game developers are not lazy. They work incredibly hard uh, in an incredibly risky thing, and they have to make every decision they can to up their chances of not losing their job. They do it because they're passionate and because they love what they're doing. They are not lazy in any way, shape, or form. And um, should console games run easily on mid-tier PC video cards without any optimization? No. No. Uh, if you choose, as a consumer, to use an inferior product to run your games... Expect to have to optimize. And if you don't like that, buy a console. Because my heart, uh, you know, I am more concerned about the people who literally, who 
figuratively break their backs to bring fun gameplay for you. And I mean, you know, again, obviously I was a developer. I'm pro developer. Uh, I'm pro unionization, by the way, in a big, big way for the video game industry. And uh, I am more sympathetic to the people who are trying to follow their passion while feeding their children than I am for people who are upset that they can't play in 4K and have to play in 1080p. At the end of the day, the human eye can barely tell the freaking difference anyway. It's all swag and and it it's yeah. So no, I I, I that that's kind of where I come down on that. And you remind me once again why I'm so happy I am not in that industry anymore. Because oh my gosh, if that is the uh, the state of things and where uh, people are complaining about, oh I have to run in 1080p instead of 4K, it's like mm. there's here, here we go right there. Uh, my apologies uh, to anybody I upset with that. But, uh, you know, think a bit uh, less about yourselves and think more about the people who are trying so hard to make their dreams come true and also provide a fun time for you. You know, uh, spare some thought for them. And don't just assume they are lazy. They are not. Um, Is NVIDIA to blame for the situation produced by the bottleneck? I was never on the hardware side, but I guarantee NVIDIA, the engineers there, have done their absolute best to make the best, highest quality system they can while keeping prices reasonable so that they don't go out of business and they have their own problems. Here's the deal. Um, Andres, I'm sh- I don't know if you've heard this. It's called Hanlon's Razor. Never assume malice uh, that can be explained by incompetence or something like that. Never assume there is ill intent when in fact it could just be oh uh, you know there are, there are things you don't know um, now of course the story is about hey there are things they don't know but there are things you don't know everybody on both sides of this equation are doing the best they can and at the end of the day if we're talking about oh you can't have high res textures you have to have medium res textures but the game still plays exactly just as well I I. I have very little sympathy for those complaints. Um, and there are ways to solve it if players want to. Alrighty. Continuing on, Brett says, I can't recall how often you speak about music on the show, but I always love hearing what artists and songs are meaningful to different people. For you and Jen, what are your two or three Desert Island albums oh. that you would choose? Any favorite songs? <clears throat> what was your wedding song? Oh, we didn't have a wedding song, right? We didn't song, right? have a wedding song, no. No, we did not. Our wedding was uh, very seat of your pants. Um, yeah. Yeah. We we got married rather quickly for... <laughs> yep. Not the reason you think. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> um, gosh. Desert Island albums. Well, obviously, you choose some Beatles. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I've not paid attention. I mean, well, does anybody pay attention to albums anymore? Is albums a meaningful thing? I have to admit... I've never really paid attention to popular music that much ever. Uh, in high school, not, in high school, I discovered the Beatles, and my dad was really into Dire Straits. So at home, I listened. I, I pretty much for the entirety of, of the '80s, I was tangentially aware of of musical trends, but they were kind of in the background. I was listening to you know Beatles um, off of a bunch of really cheap albums that I got from a used record store that I had transposed to tape and walking around with an 80s era gigantic Walkman, uh, you know, <laughs> with blinders on, ignoring the world because I was a very shy introvert and just listening to Beatles. And then at home we listened to Dire Straits. So 
I know Desert Islands for me, I mean, gosh, I mean, well, heck, the nice thing is, if Beatles is your go-to, I mean, you can pick um, you know, any three of their later albums and get such an incredibly wide variety mm. of musical styles because they were so experimental. I feel like I got everything covered. Um, and uh, yeah, and I'd, I'd probably want Dire Straits, but I could not name you the name of any album. What album has Telegraph Road on it? That's probably my favorite Dire Straits song. Uh, you know, if I could only have one Beatles, I mean, I guess it would have to be the White Album just because it's two albums. Yay! <laughs> and, uh, and there's just so much. Hey, you've got Beach Boys. You've got weird experimental avant-garde stuff you've got standard traditional things you've got sweet love ballads you've got everything uh so i guess uh, you know there's two albums for me what about you honey pie how would you approach this question um i think one of the artists i'm really enjoying right now is andy Grammer. okay uh and i think all of his music is very positive mm-hmm. and so i think if i had to choose someone it would have to be based on sort of the message behind their music mm. and you know i like his upbeat tempo and all of sure, that, sure. his voice and all that so um i would have to go through and and try and figure out other artists that are like that that i like all of their work mm. mm-hmm. um so can you think of it i mean I, I obviously i didn't talk about anything modern um because mm-hmm. i i mean i couldn't even tell you what's on the billboard top 100 i the last song i remember really really falling hard in love with was pompeii or is pompeii the artist that hey-o, 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 I was left to my own devices. I mean, that, yeah. that really, the first time I heard that performed live on Saturday Night Live, I had not heard it prior to that. Uh-huh. And it's like, I mean, I was just floored by that song. Um, and then probably the last the song prior to that that was a really big impact on me was uh, Tub Thumping, of <laughs> yeah. all things, for reasons I've talked about on the podcast in the past. I'm going to say Megan Trainer. Really? Her Megan Trainer. quite positive as well. Mm-hmm. A very um, woman-centric as mm-hmm. well, you know, about... Just yeah. We're, okay. What uh, you know, female empowerment and yeah. girl boss stuff in a positive way and all that. Yeah, you know? and that your body is fine the way it is, yeah, yeah. and yeah. Um, I used to really like Jewel, mm-hmm. um, but her, I wouldn't say all of her stuff is really positive. But she's got such a beautiful voice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm gonna go with those. All right. So I mean, that's just all relatively new stuff. Nothing oh, from Jewel your teen is... years or no. Nope. No, I've been... The whole 80s is a blight to you. Actually, I don't particularly like 80s music. You I, worked in a record shop. I it was know. your job to know everything know. about it. Or maybe, yeah, and, and I, we sort you of... You don't skip... care for Duran Duran? No Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go? No Go-Go's? No um, Bangles? They're so, they're so shallow. All of that music is very shallow. Wow. I think. In Excess is shallow? Well, maybe not, but I don't want to listen you to... You too? Is shallow? I, 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 I don't know. I'm... I'm, I'm I'm reading between the lines. I think you just didn't... I mean, in high school, did you just not care about the lyrics? I think I was just, again, more tempo and Mm -hmm. happy beat kind of Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's always been my kind of music. Right. I I think if you come away thinking it's shallow... I mean, honestly, Video Kill the Radio Star is not a shallow song. It's actually talking about, you know, changing mores in society and and all that. So I'm assuming you just probably weren't paying attention, which is certainly understandable because... You were a teenager. You were paying attention to other things, I am sure. Whereas me, I was a shy introvert. Whereas you were popular and outgoing and, you know, a captain of the cheerleading squad. I wasn't the captain. You didn't make captain. Oh. All righty. But, um, right. So for you, it's just, you are now, that's interesting. We're kind of opposites then. Mm. I think I appreciate music much more in my formative years. You, it sounds like you didn't. And you appreciate music much more now. Whereas yeah, for me, so. I'm really not paying attention to it at all. Yeah. Um, we have that, that um, 
I don't know if it's 60s music or what, but remember that um, uh, Mr. Blue Sky. Oh, uh, that's Electric Light Orchestra, yes. Roy Croce and stuff. We've recently discovered some of the music from my childhood, and I've barely been enjoying that um, music as well, but I don't think that I would take an album of okay. Ray Croce. Oh, you know what? That's Desert Island albums. You know what we need to do? Mm. We need to, if, if we can have four of them, we need um, sounds of the 70s, oh. sounds of the 80s, sounds of the 90s, and sounds of, you know, one of those, you know, the way, uh. I, I assume those things don't exist anymore because in the, <laughs> in the era of MP3s and singles, but it used to be, uh, hey, here's here's all the top hits of this decade on one album, and you can order it right now for $19.95 plus $5 <laughs> shipping and handling, and it'll be to you in four to six weeks. <laughs> or you can go to the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes, or you know, whatever that was. The oh, that that Columbia sis, House, Columbia House, not publisher's uh, clearinghouse. Uh, I mean, I, I might be inclined to do something like that because I think more than anything else, I would just go for a variety of stuff I like. But anyway, that's an interesting thing, and obviously, Jen and I approach that very differently. Okay, Daniel says sports again. Oh no! But don't worry, honey pie. What are your thoughts on Rebecca's speech uh, in uh, Season 3, Episode 10, the final episode of Ted Lasso, about football and what it means for people during the meeting with spoilers without saying anything? You know, um, I have to admit, I don't remember it, but I believe it was a, uh, you know, it's what you would expect. It was about how important sports can be, how important sports are to her, how important sports are to communities and, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure it's on YouTube. Would you like to watch it really quick? <clears throat> so we can answer Daniel's question? Sure. All right, hold on. Okay, we just watched it. Uh, for folks who want to, it's, it's kind of spoilery, but um, it's uh, you can do a search for Rebecca Heartfelt Speech on YouTube, and you can find the whole thing. Taken out of context, I mean, it's just a really important moment for her and for the show, but uh, it is a very good speech. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting because I think it's really addressing my big problems with professional sports. Because keep in mind, every single time, every month this comes up, I keep trying to remind people, professional sports. And again, without going into spoilers, uh, you know, that is a, uh, it, it, it is a treatise uh, against the excesses and the avarice of professional sports mm. and what it does to whatever is can be found in sports that are actually good and meaningful. And yeah, so you know, go Rebecca, I say. At the same time, it is interesting. She, you know, one of the, you know, when, when she extols the val- the virtues of sports, she said, it's a thing that can make ordinary men heroes and villains. Yeah. And that's kind of the other side, too. It is still, at its heart, a pastime that society uses to reinforce uh, you know, tribalistic divides between us. Um, if that we can think that some person just trying to pursue their life goal are a villain, when in fact they're not, they're just a person out there trying to have fun playing a game, that's, on, that's not on the, uh, you know, the, the capitalist forces that shape everything. Uh, uh, that's on us, or... Not me, uh, but but that's on the fans who um, take it way too seriously, quite frankly. And, uh, you know, really, because it's interesting, too. That scene is superimposed with another scene from Nate, which, by the way, is incredibly important um, because it, it basically kind of puts Nate in the room, even though he's physically not. But, you know, it's just a, a really smart trick of uh, filmmaking. 
And, you know, and so that scene is important for his development also. And what he represents and the choices he has to make in the third season. So I, I, it's beautifully produced. And uh, I think its heart is in the right place. And it also, um, but, but it does celebrate. I mean, like I said, I've got, I, I guess for half a year now, we've been talking about this, it feels like. I don't know how many episodes this keeps coming back up. But I think, uh, for me, it does come down to two things. You know, the, the, the raw, exploitive practices uh, that the powers that be can use because of the unfortunate fanaticism that sports engenders that I think is fundamentally unhealthy. Honestly, the fact that, you know, uh, you know that speech is superimposed with something that is so pure and beautiful and is beautiful not at the expense of anybody, but only in the celebration of human creativity. And I wish that is what we celebrated with such passion and fervor instead of moving little leather balls to certain places on a field or getting them through certain things. Which, ah, so that's kind of my feelings. I don't know if you have anything to say, Andy Pye. I have something tangential to say. Okay. Um, I loved how Nate had... Now remember, we're trying not to do oh. spoilers. Do you want... I mean, we, we can put we can move the rest of this to the spoiler section. Or are you trying to think of a way to say it without spoilers? Or you can just want to talk in general about something. Oh, um, I don't know if I can... Well, let's, we'll, 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 yeah. come, we'll come back to this. All right, so this is part one. We'll get to part two when we get to the spoiler section. Because interesting, we had no spoilers uh, oh, okay. in, in, the, in the mailbag. So we've got one now. So we'll circle back around, Daniel, to hear what Jen says. And folks, it'll be full season three uh, Ted Lasso spoilers. Or was it season four? The final season. Yeah, season three. Okay, next up, The Good Place. When the big main twist happened in the first season, uh, did you and Jen see it coming or were you surprised? Now, let's not say what the big twist is. Mm. And it's, it's only the first of many twists yes. um, from one of the greatest TV shows of all time. I certainly didn't see it coming. Can you pause for a second? I want to make sure I understand uh, which, hold on. Uh, which season we're talking about. Okay, Jen had to be reminded what the twist was. <laughs> it's been a long time and we've watched a lot of shows. Yes, exactly. Um, so, no, I didn't see it coming. No. And you didn't remember it either as it happens. Nope. All right. Uh, okay. Okay, oh, uh, question three. Back to the Eric Lang misquote. I still didn't answer whether I agree that my side should stop with the, quote, you better support human rights the way I tell you to or you're a horrible person, end quote, approach, since it's pushing the normies towards the right. This is how I understood the quote, even though you seem to decree. Yeah, that's why I keep saying you're misquoting him. He is not saying that that is what happens because that's not what happens. So... Uh, that's why I keep saying, Daniel, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, let me, let's look at the quote. So if, you, if we want to put the quote aside and just talk about, hey, as a general practice, should um, uh, people in a debate say words to the effect of, you have to agree with my side or you're a bad person? Um, that's not a particularly strong debate tactic. That is a debate tactic that won't win you a debate at all. Yeah, I say that as, as a former member of, not debate club, but in high school, I did mock trial society stuff, which of course is a, a very, very like structured and formalized form of debate, uh, which I very much enjoyed that. Uh, but anyway, so no, I, I don't think, I, don't, I certainly don't think that helps. But the reality is, uh, that's, the reality is we're talking about Twitter. And as I've said on this podcast many times, Twitter is a waste of time. 
uh, your I, I I got off Twitter six months ago, and I've never been happier. I have no desire to go back. Twitter is such a tiny little microcosm of humanity. It feels like it's representative of everything, but it's not representative of real people. Because real people don't use Twitter. Real people are not very simple black and white avatars of one side or another. They're just living their lives, trying to do what's right. And yes, they can be misled. They can be fooled. Uh, they can be overzealous. They can be cold and callous. They can be all these things. Things, uh, but none of them are are you know cackling villains uh, of whatever stripe you might want to do. So uh, do I th- do I agree that my side should stop with thee? What does that mean? Does that okay? What you're I'm trying to understand what you're saying. Should left leaning people not shame racism? No, I believe. That if you are engaged in racist acts, and uh, you say, what are you talking about? I'm not being racist at all. And you refuse to engage with the fact that you are committing acts of blinding racism, uh, and subjugation, and marginalization, I don't have a problem with somebody saying, well, yeah, you're a bad person then. If, if that's what you're going to do. I, I guess I'm fine with that. I'm really on the fence about the punching Nazis thing, though, because, yeah, I like Nazis being punched, but I don't like punching. So, you know, that's a bit trickier. But, yeah, in in this case, uh, yeah, if you're doing truly horrible things and you refuse to engage with that, I have no problem you being called out for being horrible. So, hopefully that answers your question. Uh, But if not, you'll be back next month. Okay, Honey Pie. Darren says, listening to the latest podcast, it's sports again. All righty. You can start looking for your words of wisdom, I suppose, because you're probably just going to tune out now. Uh, Folks, Jen is here. Jen doesn't care about any of this stuff. I'm not telling you to stop asking me about sports or left-wing, right-wing stuff, but, you know, you could ask about, I don't know, Gardening? No. You could ask about chickens. You could ask about. I have um, all fairly calm hobbies. You you could ask about investments. You could ask about um you know real estate handling. You could ask about this woman knows so much stuff (laughs) that will help you so much more in your life than these meaningless, endless debates over um you know online subject du jour. But anyway, we will now continue with sports. Alrighty, Darren says, listening to the latest podcast, it occurred to me that most of the criticism of sports also applies to movies. Hollywood is just as corrupt as professional sports. It's run by people like Harvey Weinstein. Uh, you mentioned that sports does as a war does an award show every year as PR to make you forget about the bad stuff. The Academy Awards are the same. They were created by a tactic of union busting in the 1920s. The actors got together, started demanding things like more pay, better working conditions, etc. And the studio said, oh, we'll give them a reward. This will shut them up. Uh, if the news did devote at least five minutes to the arts instead of sports, they would be just trading one distraction for another. Uh, on the ground level, yes, a local play is better than a local football game. Uh, because the play doesn't have a loser. But on the professional level, the movies aren't at all innocent with or without victims. I wrote this as I was watching. You did go on to say this. Okay. But, yes, you and I agree. You and I agree. Um, capitalism is a corrosive, destructive force. It is a. It can be a force for growth and development and good, but capitalism taken to an extreme, like anything taken to an extreme, can be a bad thing. 
All right. Uh, regarding religion, I would suggest that Den look into Taoism. Uh, you said mm. you believe there is an energy within everything. That's what Tao is all about. Oh. Go straight to the source and read Tao Te Ching. It's a very quick read. Uh, it's not uh, one to parallel, but the force uh, you know, from Star Wars is obviously based on uh, the Tao. There are passages in the Tao Te Ching, and when I read them, I thought, I can imagine Yoda saying this. I'm agnostic, but if I had to pick a religion, it would be Taoism. Also, it bothers me uh, when people say things like, we need religion to get our morals from. Aside from that being very wrong, uh, what they actually mean is, we need my religion to get my, our morals from. A podcast or two ago, you said, for all the harm sports has done, religion, sa religion says, hold my beer. What you actually meant was, the Abrahamic religions say, hold my beer. Fair point. Uh, because it's Christianity and Islam that have done all the harm. Uh, remember that time India went to war with China because Confucianism was uh, stupid and everyone said they should be Hindu? Me neither. Good point. Uh, we should be interchanging this particular religion with uh, uh, being discussed with all religion. I, I stand corrected. Should religion be taught in schools? It's a hot topic right now. My short answer is no, because religion means Christianity uh, in these conversations. My long answer is yes, but all religion should be taught, not just the current popular one. Sorry, my th uh, no question, just my thoughts. This is a question and answer show. Come on, man. But those are some very interesting observations. I don't think we have to retread the sports Hollywood thing. You're just reinforcing what I already said and believe. But hey, do you have any thoughts about, uh, you know, the positive uh, aspects of religion? Or, you know, uh, you know, the idea that, yeah, religion should be taught in school, but not... One, not religious dogma, but an appreciation of the tenets of religion. Of, you know, all religions have to say, and what are the commonalities between them? Where can we find unity? Where can we do the opposite of tribalism, which is what religion is so often the cause of? Yes. Uh, yeah. I would Re a religious studies as opposed to a Bible studies kind of a thing. Yeah, I think that would actually be really good because that would equip people to make um, critical decision thinking. Yeah. So that would be absolutely fine. And if you, hey, what if you found out that a different religion offers different options? Mm -hmm. Then you wouldn't have to go with hellfire and brimstone yep. necessarily. Yeah, I would you also... go with love and compassion and kindness. Yeah, and I would also include in that particular curriculum the history of agnosticism and atheism as well. Sure. And how... Let's actually take a long, hard look, as you point out. At, okay, do we need a religious text to be good people? Or what does the actual science say about humanity's ability to express empathy towards each other on a fundamental primate level that has allowed us to pull ourselves out of the muck before we ever decided to look at the sun and say, oh, that must be a shiny man in a chariot and I should worship him. Long before that, we were working together to better ourselves and we were being able to express empathy. Uh, religion is not a prerequisite for empathy. Nope. It's in our lizard brains. There's a lot of bad stuff in there. There's a lot of good stuff in there too. So let's also evaluate that as a fundamental tenet on the overall sliding scale of religiosity. Sounds good to me. All right. Uh, next, have you seen uh, Across the Spider-Verse Thoughts? Nope. Have not seen it. Looking forward to... Ask me again in a few months when it's available on streaming at home. Uh, all righty. Gerald uh, opens with, when I worked in the video game industry, how long did it take to finish developing the video game that took me the longest uh, and what game would be the quickest? Gosh, off the top of my head, my assumption would be that probably Fable 2 was the longest development process. I'd be willing to bet. And that must have been 
over four years, right? Would you say? I mean, you were there. Sorry, I was reading the Tao Te Ching. Are you literally reading the whole thing right now? Well, here's these are quotes from it. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Are you digging it so far? Yeah. All right, I'm going to go to LinkedIn, my LinkedIn page, because that will tell me dates and stuff. Oh, I got to log in. Uh, doop, boop, boop. Why am I not logged in? Oh, right, because I had to clear my cache and stuff. Ugh, clearing cache. No, I don't want to join LinkedIn. I would like to sign in, you goofy maloofy. There we go. So let's come back over. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, just open the page. LinkedIn.com slash in slash Richard Ham. No, not my LinkedIn feed. I, you are not a social network LinkedIn. I, mean, I guess you are, whatever. But can we just go back to my online resume, please? Please. All right, I think we're, I think we're there now, folks. It's very slowly loading. Wow, LinkedIn, what, used to, what happened to you? All right, here we go. Richard Ham, game guy. So... Here we go. Here's the dates. The dates. Show all eight experiences. So, Lionhead, I was a design director for three years and nine months. Really? From um, So, just that four years. And so, my first... Uh, it's probably half a year. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that means roughly... Fable was about three years, give or take. So, three years. Let's see what beats that. Uh, splash damage, Brink. Three years and five months. So, okay, so Fable and Brink were, right, were very close to each other within a couple of months. Three-year game development. Um, let's see here. And then we got to go back to Edge of Reality. So, I, oh my, was I at Edge of Reality again for three years and six <laughs> months? Are we seeing a slight pattern here? Yes, we are. Uh, we definitely are. Meanwhile, I've been doing Rotto Runs Through for 11 years. I am well past my expiration date that I have previously established for my, uh, for my day jobs. All right. So I was at, uh, creative, uh, creative edge reality for three years and six months as well. And when, uh, during that time, uh, I mean, gosh, I put out like four games. So those are all going to be much quicker, obviously. Uh, and then see, I was, uh, lead at, all right. So five years at Idetic, And the first year of that was Bubsy. And then it was, yeah, okay. So, Siphon Filter, their first one was about two years. Just shy of two years. Siphon Filter 2 was one year. And then I did about a year on Siphon Filter 3. But I did not finish Siphon Filter, or, or Siphon Filter Online, which became Siphon Filter 3, because I, I left. So, I guess the fastest game I ever did was Siphon Filter 2, which was just about a year. It was a sequel, and we added a bunch of stuff. Uh, but, you know, for like a fresh game, it was probably Siphon Filter under two years. Uh, I think Pitfall at Edge of Reality was about two years. Sims was maybe a year and a half. But I was really only tangential to that game. I, I, I did some early work on it and some late work on it. For the majority of time that that was in development, I was really focusing most of my efforts on Pitfall. Uh, and then both Brink and uh, uh, Fable were both about three years. But to be fair, Fable had already been in development for at least six or eight months before I ever showed up. So I showed up late. Uh, whereas I showed up on day one on Brink. So I'm going to say Fable 2 was the long. Even though I was uh, it was tied for my longest personal involvement, Fable 2 took about four years all told to develop. Plus I left a few months before it shipped as well. So Fable 2 was my longest game. And uh, I mean, like a full game, probably Siphon Filter 1 or Siphon Filter 2, would have been my shortest developed game. That is interesting. I, I mean, honestly, in my head, all those experiences feel so much longer. 
I am shocked at those quick turnaround times. Because, of course, these days, yeah, half a decade is kind of fast becoming the norm, as I understand it, for AAA game development now. These big, huge, monster games. that Yeah, you can expect to spend five years uh, developing these things now. So, another reason I'm glad I got out. Phew. Okay. Let's go back. All right. Jack says, Have either of you used ChatGPT or similar large language models? As your channel manager, Andrew, uh, do you think you could use either of them to help you on the job? And if so, what tasks would they be with? Some ideas. Composing emails for marketing copy, researching board games or glass techniques, creating production schedules. Any other ideas? I'm super excited by the technology and I love hearing how people are actually using it. Uh, I, I, I I have played around with it a little bit. I've done a few things like, um, you know, what should Rado's next top 10 videos be, you know, to maximize viewership? I've done some stuff like that. And for the most part, it's just showing me, well, I mean, of course, the reality of it is, it all it's doing is taking, you know, Wikipedia and Reddit and whatever else, you know, 50 quadrillion bits of data, basically just all these responses people have given to stuff. And then it's just saying, well, this is what people are most likely to say. So as it happens, it, you know, every time I've ever asked it a question that might be particularly germane to me, it tells me what I already knew. Quite, it, 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 it has yet to surprise me. Um, because I, I guess I know uh, my situation pretty well. When we were on the trip, uh, as we were coming back uh, on a whim, I said, "Hey, ChatGPT, uh, give me a five-day itinerary. Um, you know, following this route where we, uh, you know, we do one new thing a day." And it, 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 we were both blown away. It's like, "Wow, that sounds fantastic!" But then when I did the numbers and said, "Oh, this is actually going to take ten days. <laughs> we can't get from here to here." And so I say, "Okay, assuming we drive no more than two hundred miles in one day, or assuming we drive no over two hours." So okay, fine, we'll do that. And I could not get it to actually stick to the parameters. It kept telling me really good suggestions, but it kept telling me a thing that would have taken like a month to do. And so needs a little bit of work because, of course, again. It doesn't know what it's saying. It's just saying, this is the most likely thing based on a full understanding of everything humanity has ever said online. <laughs> uh, and I don't know if it's true or not, because I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just regurgitating a, a, a hodgepodge of stuff. So um, I, I thought it, it's cool. And it, and it did point out some stuff that we did stop and see. So that was very useful. Um, I, I think, you know, so it's, it's, it's really interesting. It's interesting for certain things. You know, it can tell you specific dates that are very widely attributed, but it can It has a hard time. Like one thing I was trying to do, uh, you know, I'm looking. I'm or I'm trying to figure out. This is where I've used it most. Trying to figure out how to be best RVers, and I was really? trying to understand more about how electricity and amperage versus uh, voltage versus wattage, and it did a great job of teaching me the fundamentals better than I've ever found anywhere else. I really have a firm understanding of the differences between these three things, Ooh. and I have since had it confirmed everything I understood was correct uh, from an electrician, Dan King, the Game Boy geek, who folks don't know, he's an electrical engineer in his day job, and when we hung out with him, he. Uh, uh, am I right? Is this is this how electricity works and is uh, you know metric? And he said, "Yeah, you've got it right. I wouldn't have put it that way, probably because I got it from ChatGPT instead of a real person. But yeah, you've got the basics." And so, uh, you know, that was interesting and that really helped me uh, learn some basic fundamentals. And but it was very important for me to confirm because every time I've ever used it, uh, often, almost without exception, when I go and confirm things like. Well, that's a misunderstanding of that, or that's not the real date, or that's literally a broken URL that doesn't go anywhere, ChatGPT. You're making stuff up, because it does. 
Uh, but uh, so like I was trying to get a sense. Well, okay, uh, you know this particular solar battery with combined with these particular solar panels. How much? How long would this particular um, laptop? And uh, a bit of an electronic, how, how many watt hours, you know, it's, it's a simple math thing. These things produce, you know, consume this much watt hours. Uh, these things produce this much and it should just be able to do it. And it got it wrong every time. It, it felt, it, it said something very confidently that felt right. But then when I ran the numbers, like, well, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. So um, with that in mind, I have not really tried to use it for anything important. Honey, do you have any thoughts about ChatGPT? Uh, you know, he suggested you could yeah. use production schedules or research, uh, you know, glass techniques. I'm sure if you typed it up, you, I mean, if you said, hey, what are like the coolest new ways to glass torch beads, it would probably tell you about some stuff, maybe even stuff you haven't heard of. Um, I suppose I just have so much other stuff. I do not need to. You don't need new ideas. I don't need new ideas. <laughs> I don't need more time that, yeah. Yeah. And I think this is a rabbit hole you could surely, surely go down. I mean, when you first found out about it, you spent a day at least looking at... Just having fun, yeah. Art with seven fingers and things. <laughs> so. Yeah, so we've dabbled. I, I've tried to use it uh, in earnest, but it's um, it's uh, it, it, it proved to be a bit too unreliable. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a very exciting future. And I mean, I mean, considering how fast it's come on, and just over the last half decade, it's gone from nothing to this. Uh, it's you know just one more step in why it's one. It's is one of the reasons I continue to believe in a utopian future for humanity after we get through the ensuing dark times. Uh, and 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 you know, it, it 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 itself is not the answer, but it shows a potential. Uh, because I, 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 there's one channel I subscribe to on YouTube where there's this girl who says, uh, "Here's how you can learn languages using ChatGPT. Here's how you can, um, you know, take college level courses." You, and you know, and she actually does, she does the work to figure out right. Here's how you can get the right information out of this to customize uh, lesson plans for yourself. And I watch some of those and I'm like, wow, that's really impressive. And that's very exciting. Um, you know, Star Trek's understanding of what a true partnership with AI could be is so woefully inadequate compared to what it could really be. And so that is very, very cool. Along the same lines, have you used any ARR generators? Some ideas. Generate marketing images. Generate glass model concepts. Nope, Jen has not. I when I started doing the crowd sorcery show, I said, "Oh, I need a logo," and I kept trying to do crowd sorcery and um, you know board, wizards playing board games. I tried a million different things, and I got really cool, interesting, evocative, abstract, surreal, often creepy art. Um, but I could not get anything, and I said, "Oh no!" But make it as a logo, make it as a vector bit, and no matter what, it just couldn't give me anything that would be usable. So ultimately, somebody made a nice logo, and you know, did a little bit back and forth. They did it kind of like they were in school learning how to do, you know, Photoshop and Illustrator work, and like, oh, I can do this for fun on the side because I'm practicing my skills I use in my class. I'm like, oh, that's nice, cool. And so ultimately, at that point, it was still. But I mean, I look at the output, and I, it makes perfect sense. I mean. It's such an incredibly powerful tool for, I mean, if I were in the video game world, I could certainly imagine myself using that. If I was trying to say, okay, this is what I want this creepy house to look at, I might spend an afternoon, uh, you know, try, until I got some images to say, okay, something like this, instead of me just trying to describe it in words. And I might have to do that because the company can't afford to have world-class concept artists on anymore because Dali can do it. Um, and of course, Dolly is doing it, standing on the shoulders of all those artists. So there's all kinds of problems with it. 
Um, you know, at the end of the day, it is, I mean, these are creative tools that will allow new forms of expression and creation. And they will also, in, I mean, uh, um, you know, was it? Uh, scrawling on papyrus was a form of human expression that went away because it was replaced by technological advances. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, I, I want to say it's not going to replace human creativity, but I can't say that. It could. Everybody keeps saying, it'll never happen. What's the joke? Um, uh, you know, ChatGPT didn't have a bad childhood, so it'll never be a good stand-up comic. <laughs> you know, some, I'm, I'm butchering the line, but it's a really good line. And, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think you're underestimating just what technology can do. Uh, you know, it, in, in Star Trek, you know, with the holodeck, it, th there have been episodes where they just walk in and say, holodeck, create a Sherlock Holmes mystery for me. And the holodeck just does. Yeah. And, um, you know, ends up creating a sentient character who could almost destroy the Enterprise. Blah, blah, blah. All that stuff. <laughs> but, you know... Spoilers! I can imagine that happening. I can imagine that. Um, I mean, one of the first things I did with ChatGPT as I was seeing what did other people do is, yeah, you can play little um, text-based adventures. It will make an adventure game for you and you can play it just on the fly. Uh, and it's really impressive. And it's incredibly primitive. And uh, it's just going to get more sophisticated. I don't think... While I think it can replace uh, commercial human creativity, it won't create human creativity. It won't replace human creativity. It was an interesting thing. When we were on the road uh, for two months in the RV, hmm. Jen's number one thing, which I don't think we anticipated, yeah. was how frustrated you got by not having a creative outlet. Yep. Um, right? Yeah. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Oh, Because I've been talking a lot. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, basically, I, I was so concentrating on like getting stuff ready for the show in Vegas and uh, packing the RV for the first time and all sorts of stuff. I just completely forgot to bring like anything. I didn't have yarn and knitting needles. I didn't have paper and paints. I didn't have glass, obviously. Um, about, all I could do was convert beads into earrings, mm -hmm. which I did in time for the Vegas show. So, you know, it's just, it was amazing that I totally just forgot that very important part of my life, it got subsumed by all of the other practicalities of things. Planning so, and yeah, everything. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, <clears throat> well, no, I mean, uh, I'm just... Uh, my point is, you were... You wanted to come home early because you had an itch to create. Yeah. And you couldn't. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so my point is, I don't think that goes away. Even in a future world mm. where ChatGPT 75 and Dolly 42.3... <laughs> can pretty much produce a, uh, you know, you can push a button and produce, okay, I want, you know, I, I want to, uh, give me some ideas for Hollywood blockbusters. And he'll just make a random series of them based on the history of Hollywood blockbusters. Hey, number three, combine number two and number three. Make it. And they'll go and make it. And, oh, and make, and make it star John Wayne and uh, Kid Jesus, Rock. Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, this particular version of Jesus Christ. Because we don't have any historical or, you know, video. Or whatever. You know, and they'll be able to do that. And it will produce something that looks photo real and um, you know, has you know, uh, you know, quality sound and production and lighting and everything. That will happen. Um, you know, because that's basically what we just took for granted. Oh, the holodeck can just do that. And it's actually real, physical form. You know, uh, emitted photons that were all the matter for some reason. So, yeah, that will come. And in that future, even if the majority of what's available to us uh, is, you know, that, that's, that's what it comes from, 
And because it's gotten to the point where, yeah, it is in, in the same way that talking with ChatGPT is almost indistinguishable with talking with a real person online, it will get to the point where it can create art that is indistinguishable. Currently, there's so many telltale signs, but eventually there won't be. Eventually, it will, you know, based on what say, we've count done. how many fingers you've got. Yeah, it's all that. It's getting better with that now. Fingers equals five. But even still, in that circumstance, in this utopian future where all of our needs are met, there it's post-scarcity, people do things because they want to, not because they need to, people will still want to create. And I believe there will still be an appreciation for that. That will never go away. And the problem is, it's okay. Because you say, oh no, artists will lose their livelihood. The reality is, in a utopian post-scarcity society future, nobody has livelihoods. People do things because they want to, not because they need to to survive. Yeah. And so it fundamentally rewires the, the precepts we, our society has had uh, ever since we invented money. You know, before that, you know, when we were a agrarian society, when we were a barter, you know, uh, all this goes away when all your needs are met. And yet you still exist and you still have to find fulfillment for yourself. And that comes from... Fostering relationships with human beings. That comes from expressing yourself creatively. Even if you only do it for your friends and family as opposed to... I mean, honey, uh, fast. you're a glass artist. You derive a lot of value from your work by the fact that you can sell it. Mm -hmm. What's the world look like for you when... Oh, you know what? Uh, glass bought 37,000 can do everything you did. And uh, fast and cheap and perfectly, uh, you know, mass produce a hundred times and give everybody exactly what they want. And I mean, you'll be in a situation where people won't buy your glass anymore. Yeah. What's what's your world going to be like? What what's going to happen to you as an artist? I think it just encourages you to go deeper into whatever you're exploring, mm -hmm. um, without any need, any commercial motivation at all. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably a great thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, and is it okay that, you know, pr provided you're not starving, that you're doing this just for your own betterment as a yeah. as a, a way to use your medium to express, you think that's fine? Yeah, or just, it doesn't even have to be, exp exp I mean, everybody's like, oh, this piece says this, or whatever. Sure, 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 yeah. Um, you're not that kind of artist. You're I'm more not... of a, you're a craftsperson. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess yeah. so. I'm yeah. just, I don't have any, I had a good life, so I don't have any angst to have to <laughs> get out there. Mm -hmm. um, but... Uh, no, I think it's just fine to experiment and see what this does with that and enjoy what happens from that and, mm -hmm. and you know, give it away or enjoy it yourself or... Or recycle it recycle into the next it. thing. Yep, absolutely. Yep. All right. Well, yeah. So... In fact, that's probably the highest form of art when it's not... There's when there's no commercialism commercial involved. Around, yeah. There you go. Yes. Yeah. When it's not the artist-patron relationship or a patron relationship, when that is abolished because we will live in a world where... I mean, you know, money doesn't have any meaning. People do things because they love it. Yep. And you know, and that could still mean you know, people could say, "Well, I, I, I love being an engineer, and whatever it is the AI can't do, I'll do." Um, or I, as an artist, I want to create a waiting room in a hospital that brings some light and joy to somebody who has to sit there and yeah. you know, in a horrible time in their life or whatever. Yep. Yeah. Okay. In general, what are your thoughts? Oh, and we might have already hit this. What are your thoughts on the development of AI, Jen? Uh, do you have any books on near future science fiction in for because you talked recently yeah. about how that's the kind of stuff you love these optimistic views of the future has this informed your views on the development of AI and for that matter are anything like these AI models discussed in those books uh, they are a little bit in, in essentially I mean these guys have implants and so they can access the internet you know at the speed of thought and that sort of thing um, and they also have AI assistants who are helping them mm -hmm. you know like you know they'll 
they'll think a thought, hey, can you do this quick research and give me a summary of something? Mm-hmm. Or just beam it into my brain and I will understand it. Yeah. So there's that kind of stuff. But um, so if, because I prefer the optimistic, futuristic scenarios, the AI is fine. Yeah. So it's a good partner. But here's the thing. I mean, I assume, I mean, uh, to me, I think Star Trek has fundamentally undersold. And I never really appreciated it until I saw ChatGTP in action. Uh, because in Star Trek, it's still a show about human beings for human beings today. So you don't want to see an entire show where, you know, the voice of uh, Majel Barrett uh, solves all the problems every week. Yep. And humanity just sits around and, you know, plays their trombone <laughs> and, uh, you know, engages in philosophical debate. That's just not a good show. So humans still do everything. And like I said, in these books, yeah, they show AI, but it's just like, oh, it, you know, in in, in, a, a in the Maltese Falcon, that was just your employee, and now it's just your employee. It just becomes a parallel. It's not actually fundamentally changing anything other than just convenience factor. Mm, yeah. Right. And I think that's a fundamental efficiency factor. Yeah, efficient. Yeah, and that's a lack of under uh, of, of imagination of truly. And I, I'm not saying I'm sure there are speculative fiction books that go into more. To, no. How does being a human being change mm. when you have something like this? And your and in your books, I assume. Yeah, the characters in these books could still be people today. Yeah, there's nothing fundamental about the human condition and the human experience. Right. And I, like I said, so I, I think popular science fiction doesn't really, really hit these in a way that when you start playing with these tools, it hits you on such a guttural, visceral level that a way that I don't think science fiction has prepared us for, mm. because science fiction see, views everything through the lens of, well, yeah, but the human experience isn't going to change. The human experience will fundamentally change in 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 ways that are almost unimaginable. So, uh, yeah. And honestly, I think they'll change for the better because that is what history has shown us. We continue yeah. to improve for the better. We always have. And we don't we can't understand how it's going to be until we get there. Exactly, yeah. Um Okay, moving on. We've got one for Jen specifically. On religion, you said you believe we are made of energy, beings of energy. I don't think you said made of energy. I mean, because you're not saying that it's more of a philosophical, what is a soul kind of a thing. That, you know, that that we have an essence, a life force kind of a thing. As opposed to we are... But anyway, I assume you aren't simply talking about E equals MC squared. The scientific understanding of matter and energy are the same thing. Yes. Okay, there we go. Yeah. I'm sorry. I should have just kept reading. Uh, after all, an atheist scientist wouldn't describe his understanding of uh, this relationship as religious. So, what distinguishes your belief from an expression in a physics textbook? What is your definition of energy, and how does it differ from the scientific one? Uh, besides this energy belief, what other uh, beliefs do you hold that would make you distinguish yourself from an atheist? Okay. Wow, that is a really good question, and it is a big, heavy thing, and... Wow, I just don't know that I am prepared to to go into a really big dissertation on it. Well, it's not like it's it's not like this is what you live your day to day life by. It's just kind of like a vague sense you have, yeah, right? It's I mean, very vague, and it's not organized in any way. It's, it, I haven't been schooled. I haven't gone to Sunday school. I haven't, you know, thought you, about this you, regularly on a no. It's, it's basis. just kind of like a a vague sense that you have that, that makes sense to me. It that just, there there's energy and matter, and that there's something. Don't know what it is. Yeah. Uh, but it, you know there there is some kind of energy that you know defines us beyond just a collection of chemical and electrical uh, you know uh, explosions in our head. That there's something more to it. Yes. That that energy that is that you could easily break down as a series of chemical and electrical stimuli 
It's that's there's more to it than that. And you don't know what it is, but there's something. Yeah, I guess that's a very nice way to put it. Right. And that's about as far as you take it. Yeah, and also I think whatever that is is probably a, a part of a of the greater living life force, if you will. Mhm. And if I kind of think about it as like a little beam of light returning to a big glom of light like mm -hmm. a sun like we this little bit of this particle of energy that is what i define as me not this body that i live in right now mm -hmm. um would return to the mothership if mm -hmm. you will mm -hmm. and rejoin the collective of all of the other energies and that maybe that little particle would go out and have another life at some point uh, or but again that, not I that that particle on. is you yeah that particle is kind of an amorphous concept of energy that is a reflection of you and what has come before and what will come in the future because there is a continuity to energy. You cannot destroy, destroy energy. Just it just changes, it changes form. forms. Yeah. And so that is, yes. and that's your treaties. And we're all part of it. And so mm -hmm. we should all treat each other as brothers and sisters and equals. Right. It's less a, a fundamental definition and more of just, hey, because of this, here's the way we should behave. Yeah, I think that's a perfect reason to behave. Because we're all connected. We're all the same. you would wish to be treated. Mm -hmm. The golden rule. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, the continuation, uh, you know, what distinguishes yourself from an atheist? Obviously, that is very much not an atheist ideal. I would say that is that is a religious belief. That might be a Taoism thing, but yeah, I don't could, know enough could, to say it's it, it, Taoism. It could very well be. Uh, that, that is probably has been expressed because, I mean, I mean, I would say within the confines of what we're talking about here, an atheist, I mean, myself, I'm a staunch diehard atheist. I have in my whole life. I'm like, no, 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 we are literally just nothing more than uh, chemical and electrical processes. And when it shuts down, it, it, that's it. It's done. Um, well, no wonder you want to live forever. Of course. Yes, I very much want to live forever. There's no after this. There was no before this. Uh, you know, this is all you get. It's all nothing afterwards. So, yeah, I would say you are, de de by definition, not an atheist. And I guess, I'm not quite sure. I think it sounds like you're not agnostic. Or maybe you are agnostic. Agnostic agnostic definition. A person who believes that nothing is known or can be known. So, you know, no, you're saying I know something. The deep, I mean, so you're not agnostic. You have, and agnostic is, look, I'm just dodging the question completely. Don't ask me. Um, whereas you're saying, no, 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 there is, there is something. I'm not saying there is something. I'm saying that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. So whether it is, so that's what you choose. That's the same thing as faith for every, yeah, every that, that religion, is the belief, if you will. That is the belief you subscribe to. And so that is a tenet of faith for you. That you believe that that's, that, that makes sense to you. That's probably what it is. Right? And that's fine. Yeah. I, I have no so. problem with that. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not like that rocks the foundation of our relationship. Me being a diehard atheist and you being a person of non-standard spirituality. Because that is go. a form of spirituality that you are def defining. Yeah. Um, I yeah. with that. So, to answer the question... What other beliefs do you hold that would distinguish yourself from an atheist? I mean, you're you're 100% not an atheist. You think that there is this continuity. I mean, you're basically describing in a less abstract, in a, in a more concrete way, or a slightly tiny bit more concrete way, the concept of a soul. But, but again, you've never thought about this much at all. You, you've thought about it more now than you ever have before. Well, Mom and I used to talk a lot about this kind of stuff. Okay. And mom has, mom was a religious scholar. She looked at a lot. I mean, she was, uh, what she was, you know. I believe she was a practicing Buddhist, right? She was at the end, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but she started out life, of course, as a 
Catholic? Christian? I am never sure. Don't bother telling me. Mm-hmm. But whatever, whatever that glum in my mind is, mm-hmm. um, with the fire and the brimstone and all that. And then she became, um, oh, oh my gosh, she went through like five different kinds of religion. Um, where she studied them and she thought about it. And anyway, she ended up with Buddhism. Right. Which seemed like a very peaceful, fine, um, considerate religion. Mm-hmm. So I was happy for her. Okay. And it gave, it gave her great comfort at the end. Okay. All right. Well, those are some observations. Uh, but yeah, clearly Jen is not an atheist. I would say Jen is a spiritual person in a tiny way. In a non-religious organized way. Yeah, yeah. And it has absolutely nothing to do with organizational structures of humanity uh, that tend to end up separate, siloing us into different belief systems that ultimately lead to struggle and violence, unfortunately. Yeah. Alrighty. Jonathan says, have you been watching Silo? Oh my God, it's amazing. I describe it as Fallout meets modern day uh, Christian democracy. 10,000 people are in a self-sufficient silo. They have no idea how they got there. They have no idea why they're there, except they're told the outside world will kill them. Relics of the past are banned, and if you don't abide by the rules, uh, you will get sent outside. Nothing really more I want to say without spoiling, uh, but this is the first show since Breaking Bad where I can't wait for Thursday night for another episode to release. Mind-blowing! <laughs> Apple TV Plus is on fire right now. Completely agree with Ted Lasso and Shrinking. Love the morning show. And the best part is a short season with no fluff, no commercials, means the season is only 8 to 10 hours per show. Totally doable. Do you find yourself more than willing to pay for that level of efficiency? Hoo-hoo. Um, right, what is your thought, Honey Pie? I mean... Uh, you have not seen Silo. To answer your question, uh, um, Jonathan, I think Silo is great. I'm very much enjoying it. Uh, I, I I thought it would be too grim, so I didn't even bother showing it to Jen. Is it too think... grim? Remember that um, one night you came out and you said, why do you keep gasping? Yeah. I was watching Silo. Okay, that doesn't answer my question. I was huh? just... Uh, that just means it's, it's incredible. It, 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 it is a totalitarian world yeah. where, as he says, 10,000 people... Um, you know, I mean, the description of the show is... For unknown generations, these 10,000 people have lived in an underground silo and built a society. Uh, Due to unknown things that happened in the past, everybody has forgotten how they got here. Uh, And uh, information about the past is uh, banned. And and really, the thing that drives the story, there's a murder mystery. And uh, a sheriff is trying to figure out, well, who caused the murder? And what does this really mean? And what are we learning about the reality of nature? And, you know, and, and how people, f- you know. Okay. Uh, but it is it is a dark place. It is an oppressive society. It is, mm. uh, it's a bit slow paced as well. Uh, slow drama. Maybe you'd like it. I don't know. I'm really enjoying it quite a bit. Well, I'll let you finish the season and then you can decide if I should and watch it. Watch, yeah, that. All right. Okay. Uh, but anyway. My personal screener. <laughs> I appreciate that. So, what do you think these days, honey, about TV shows that are only 10 episodes for a season? Instead of the way it's always been since we grew up, where, oh, yeah, 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 20 or 20, 22 or 24, and then the show goes away for a year, and then it's back. Whereas nowadays, hey, you get to 8 or 10 episodes, and the show goes away for 2 or 3 years. Mm. What do you think about the way we consume, or TV is produced these days? Um, I like to binge, so I guess I like it better. Okay, you don't miss getting a season of 24 episodes of Star Trek that literally is spread out over nine months. That every week for nine months you get a new episode of Star Trek or I'm trying to think of other shows you would have liked. Um, Quantum Leap. Friends. Friends. Yeah. Whatever. Um, yeah, I like it better this way because then I can sit down and watch something when I'm ready to sit down and watch something. Okay. I don't have to plan my life around their schedule. Mm-hmm. I like that. Well, we've always been very... Um, 
cutting edge when it comes to recording methodology. Well, that's true. But I think still, it was always Thursday night was Friends night. Yeah, we did, you're right. We did tend to watch it live, even though we didn't have to. Actually, no, what eventually happened is when, when DVRs came out, I don't remember now. It's kind of getting a blur. <laughs> I think you, yeah, with a, when, when TiVo really came on, that was very exciting because, okay, let's record this episode. And let it just run for 15 minutes. Oh, yeah. And then we can skip And then we can the start watching. And we've got basically a queue of 15 minutes and we can skip the commercials. Yeah. That was very, very cool. That was nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I was like, what? Commercials? <laughs> yep. So, yeah. So you're, you're pro. Um, me, I, uh, I, I am anti-binging. I think binging is bad for network television. I think, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, it leads to shows that are... No matter how good they are, they are forgettable. They do not last in the zeitgeist because people aren't coming back every week. It's you know a communal uh, you know it's it's a form of communal theater where every week there's a new episode of Breaking Bad or Game of Thrones or you know I mean all of the shows that are truly yeah. pop culture hugely influential do not follow. I mean the biggest show I can think of that is a bingeable show is Stranger Things. Where they say, hey, look, here's the whole season. Ten episodes, boom, and you're done. And that was a breakthrough. But even Stranger Things for the last season has realized, wow, we are no, we are, they're, they're still a blip compared to Game of Thrones. Or, you know, uh, traditional shows that make you live with the show for months as everybody wanders and waits and all of that. And, you know, the delayed anticipation and the release when you find out. And then the next thing, I mean, I think that is a more powerful and potent form of storytelling. Uh, and I think the bingeable system is fundamentally weaker. And I'd be willing to bet you there are executives within Netflix that say, why did we ever do this? Yeah, we got a lot of attention for a while and we kind of redeformed the paradigm, but it makes <laughs> things worse because people don't remember our shows the way that we still remember Friends all these years later. Uh and, you know, and so they're, you know, like I said, that's why, hey, okay, we'll tell you what, it has to be bingeable, so let's just put the th first three episodes out, and you can binge that, and now that you're hooked, okay, we'll give it to you drip feed week by mm. week by week, which is be kind of becoming the new norm as a way to kind of transition back to what I think is ultimately, forget about what's better for the viewer, it's just a smarter business model. Um, you don't want people to set and then forget your show, um, you know, a, a week later. You want them to still be thinking about it. You want them to not just move on with their lives. Uh, but anyway, one last question. Mm -hmm. It's becoming apparent that you're diversifying the channel. Uh, and a, or, you know, a Captain Obvious Statement, if I've ever heard one, a couple of episodes back, you were talking about whether you should change the name. Uh, this should have been in the first half, but what the heck, we'll just leave it here. And uh, all that uh, got me thinking that you're right. Rotto is an important brand identifier. So changing the name makes no sense. But what if you made your channel the Rotto Network? That way, contributors wouldn't have to worry about all logistics of how to open their videos. And it would even give you the opportunity to include contributors uh, that want to keep their own brand but contribute to the show as well. It would mean that it doesn't matter how many videos you were uh, to contribute moving forward. The network would be responsible for editing, promoting, etc. Now, obviously, you could do as much or as little as you want. Um, it would be start to give you the freedom to think about moving on without worrying about the brand. Just a thought. Love what you do. I uh, just wanted to provide uh, my two bits long-term. That's a very good observation. And honestly, that is the way I'm thinking about it. And that is a verbalization. I don't know if I can actually change the name of my channel. I mean, right now, it's you know, youtube.com slash Rotto. 
I mean, but still, you're talking about changing, you know, saying, hey, everybody, welcome to the Rado Network. Uh, today, we're doing blah, blah. I mean, we could. I mean, really, more than anything else, we're trying to change the name of the channel and change our opener and closer and just refer, or constantly reinforce that the same way, um, you know, hey, there's the Peacock Network or Paramount Network or Hulu Network. You know, actually, Rado is just as meaningless a term as Hulu. <laughs> or I can't even think of all the names of all the different channels that come up. That's a really interesting way to put it. I like that a lot. I will have to give that some thought because that is that is spot on. Okay, Joseph says, personal for Richard and Jen. These days, we see so many beautiful cinematic stories delivered through TV rather than movies. Uh, do you think this trend will lead to fewer films and more TV series? Why or why not? I think it already is. I think, you know, people complain a lot about how, man, Hollywood just seems to keep doing just a few things. They just keep repeating themselves over and over again. Um, that's because there is a mass exodus uh, to TV shows because there are so many ways it is a superior storytelling experience. Even the cinematic storytelling experience of telling a complete uh self-contained story in one night, little night-sized bu uh, bucket is being replaced by premier miniseries. You know, when I grew up, miniseries were kind of a... Well, they were event viewing, but they were kind of a joke. Shogun, and uh, Roots was not a joke, certainly, but the you know the day after. But I, I remember, you know, well, look, we're trying to do this... I mean, it's because I don't remember any of the joke miniseries. But um, nowadays, that's kind of where prestige premiere shows are. I just finished Beef the other day, and it was amazing. Um, and I'm very, very happy that it's a stunned story. And they're not... Because every time they try to pull a second story out of a story that was completely done. It should have been a standalone and should have just left alone, whether it's Russian Doll or The Flight Attendant or True Detective. Uh, you, 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 you just quit while you're ahead. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, often that's the problem with movies too, where you, you did not need the sequel. The story was fine as it was. But um, yeah, what do you miss from the cinema experience? Well, of course, there's going to the cinema and having the communal experience and all of that, and that's a shame. But uh, more and more, people have bigger and bigger TVs at home, and they're more likely to have a nice sound system. And so a lot of that goes away. And so really, you're missing out on the communal experience. And people can find that communal experience in lots of other ways, too, besides cinema, when they can recreate all the good stuff and not have to deal with the bad stuff from cinema. So, yeah, I think that's changing. And I think it's going to continue to evolve. And uh, movie theaters will be just this weird, special thing you do every once in a while. Uh, or that real diehard aficionados do, and that most people are like, well, why do you even do that? Kind of like public theater. You know, public theater has huge um, devotees, uh, where once upon a time, it was the only form of entertainment. And now it's kind of like a niche form of entertainment uh, for uh, you know, a, a small you know, subset. I think that's where cinema is ultimately going to go. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, I can imagine a future where, oh yeah, this really great prestige miniseries that was, you know, 15 hours long gets recut into a, uh, a, a two hour movie and they play it on cinema screens for the cinemaphiles who want to have a group communal experience. Although who knows? VR might change everything and we will start mm -hmm. to actually view stuff, a, a, a group. I have played with my, uh, my first generation, what's it called? The, the thing from... I can't remember the name of it, but the VR goggles the, from Meta, they are now, from Facebook Meta. Uh, you know, they, they have virtual movie theaters. And you can just jump in and just be sitting down and like look around and, oh, those are actually real human beings just all watching this movie with me right now. Mm. And it really surprised me. And uh, like, whoa, this feels different than just me watching a movie by myself. I'm watching it with strangers and, uh, and all of that. 
And I, I can imagine that being a potential future that uh, you know kind of re replicates that experience that will over time be lost. Uh, and in the meantime, the uh, you know the makers of films are just having to double down with look, okay, it's getting harder and harder and harder for us to be successful at this. So let's. Um, not just cast a wide net because the vast majority of those things will lose us way too much money and we'll go out of business. Let's just keep giving them what they have proven they will come out to go see. Big tentpole event films. Um, because, yeah, I mean, there's the, the wonderful little cinematic independent films, but, you know, you can get those on TV at home, too. And TV can be much more responsive to you. You don't have to get a babysitter for the kids and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think the trend will continue to because technology has just moved on. And, you know, the, the cinema-going experience was just a replacement for the theater-going experience. The home cinema experience is very different. And we'll find different replacements for that social experience. I mean, people still want to go see sporting events live in spite of the fact that, hey, for my entire lifetime, it's much easier and more convenient to watch them at home. <laughs> but people do still fill stadiums. So, I mean, things don't go away. But a lot more people watch the Super Bowl at home than actually show up at the actual event. And I think that's the same for movies. I don't know if you have anything to say about that, Honey Pie. Mm, nope. Then we'll move on to number two. Can you think of any skill that you develop through playing board games that you use in your daily life? For example, I found that playing Euro games regularly has helped me become more efficient and productive with my time at work. Ooh, that's exciting. I'm sure your boss is happy about that. <laughs> uh, gosh, have we developed any skills through... Uh, mm, I'm trying to think if I have developed any skills. Can you think of any skills I've developed? I think that board games allow us to practice skills that we already had. Yeah, I mean, we didn't come into board gaming until we were in our late 40s, early 50s. And we had lived a life. Um, you know, Jen's entire modus operandi, for at least her entire adult life that I've known her, has been extreme efficiency in everything. You know, measure twice, cut once. Do Ooh. not um, get in the car until you have five different things you're going to go do. <laughs> Don't do five individual trips out to do things. Uh, wait until you have five tasks and then go do them all at once. Yeah. Uh, that has always been her thing. And, of course, board games just give her a fun way to... Capitalize on that. Yeah, to enjoy the skills in a... In a, in a way that doesn't actually require that you know there's very low stakes. Yes, very low um, stakes. To to you know because it's very satisfying to say yes, I ticked off all these things in one afternoon, <laughs> and uh, yeah, maybe it was you know I mean, it was the most efficient way possible. So I mean that's kind of just been the way we've always lived our lives, and board games have not introduced that to us, and I don't even think they've necessarily reinforced that, but they give us an outlet to be able to express that. Yeah. In a fun way, in a way that. Other forms of entertainment don't. You can't be really efficient at it, consuming a movie, or uh, well, you're, the way you do it is you give some of your attention to the movie and some of it to your laptop. That's true. Yes. Well, it depends. I mean, that's my whole rating system. Is you know, if ever I if ever I do a uh, if ever I sw stop doing board game videos and do uh, TV and movie videos, my rating system will be you know <laughs> what percent of my attention do you get for your runtime. Uh, you know, because my laptop is right there. It's very comfortable. And yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you know, 90%. Okay. Pretty much the only thing I'll use my laptop for is looking up, well, who is this actress? That's driving me nuts. As opposed to, uh, 20%. Well, okay. I can hear you in the background, but, um, you know, and I'm picking up like the key bits, but I don't really care if the whole thing just stopped kind of a thing. Um, uh, because you've just failed to 
engage uh, you. Engage me enough that I'm not just, okay, well, I can be doing more with my brain right now. Uh, even if I'm doing both things less efficient, you know, less effectively than I could be otherwise. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm trying to... Uh, board games remind me of how terrible I am at math. Uh, I don't think they've made me any better yeah. currently. And board games have certainly highlighted to me how my brain has changed. After, oh, that's interesting. Go on. Yeah, after menopause, because I used to be able to do math in my head very easily and not even think about it. Really? And now I have to check and double check my mental math. Really? That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, and I don't know why, but I mean, I've talked to a lot of my girlfriends and they say, yep, the <laughs> those kinds of things are, are something I'm struggling with more as well. That's very interesting. Now, um, you know, we've talked on a previous uh, podcast episode about how your ability to consume board games has definitely changed mm. in the time we've been playing. Yeah. Because when we lived in Malta, you could handle a Vita Lasarda game without blinking an eye. It's like, bring it on. I want more of this. And now you're like, oh my God, I can't handle this. Yeah, I get And it's not like you've gotten stupider or you're, or you're you, it's not like you lack the ability, but I, and we, and when we talked about this before, I, I think the main thing we kind of focused on was, you know, more the circumstances of your life. We were in a less pre stressful situation when we lived in Malta. There were still daily stresses, but life was more relaxed. And we're, you know, the hypothesis was, I can devote more brain power to this. I, I have more free CPU cycles <laughs> in my um, in my noggin than you do now, so it's harder for you to really engage. Uh, but I wonder. I think that there's something with that because the menopause thing. Yeah, because now it's like okay, I figured out this this particular path. This yes. is going to cost me eight. Yes. And then I think, well, this path, this is going to cost me six. And then this one over here is five. But what was that one again? Mm -hmm. Oh, shit, I have to, excuse me. I have to shoot. Shucks. Oh, crap. Now I have to bleep. Bleeping is so much editing work, but that's okay. I'm sorry. Honey, it's all right. Oh, dear. It's fine. Um, now, what was that? That was, <laughs> where, or, and what was the path I was going to take? And, okay, two, three, three and a half, seven, eight. Okay, that was eight. And this one was what again? And so I. This is I why now... I never win, ever. By well, the way, yeah, because that's what she's doing. This is what I'm doing, but I'm now going to have to start writing these things down. This one was eight. This one was six. This one's or, five. Or, or I don't. I just can't remember it all. Anymore. Or you could play like me and say, well, okay, yeah, this one feels better than the other one. Well, maybe I need to do the math and then just not worry about whatever the number was, but just okay. I remember that this one over here was seemed pretty good. <laughs> but I mean, that is to me that is a definite um, decrease in memory well okay that's but that again is still about the math what about you know games that aren't it isn't about the math it's just about the fact that okay there are 15 things i could be pursuing yeah and by the end of this game i'm really only going to be able to do well at three of them but these two things dovetail in this one this one really supplements these other things am i going to be able to bring this into that and oh and then this other thing happened and now i should really focus on this what about that i mean not about the numbers specifically but just about the number of spinning plates. Yes. Well, I think it's... Do you have a hard... Do, do you struggle with that more than you used to? I think I do. Because like yesterday when we were playing um, that game with uh, get four um, completed stories or tuck four asteroids. Uh, that was Expeditions. Yes. Okay. Or do four tools. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah yes. Um, you know, I just kept like spinning. I was like, well, I've I've invested in all of this stuff to be able to do the stories mm -hmm. or the quests. The quests, yes. Um, oh, but I I have this thing where every time I play a meteorite, I can tuck a meteorite. So yes. I really should be doing that. And I was like, ah, a meltdown of my brain. And do you think six or seven years ago? I think I would have. 
Well, see, this is what I think back to Agricola. One of the reasons we like Agricola so much is because you get the little cards and it plots your course. You you have a way forward. You have a you you have an overall strategy. You spend yeah. your first half hour of the game saying, of these twenty one cards you gave me, I can only keep fourteen, and I know I'm only going to play like five or six of them. Yep. And what order do I play them? What What's my early game going to be? What's my late game going to be? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't know if it's a change in games and that it's so much more open. Like even at the end of Expeditions. Yes, that was Expeditions, yes. Um, I could have still been tucking asteroids. I could have still been tucking tools. I could have still been trying to get another star on the board to because um, there was that multiplier for how many stars per story Yeah, yeah, yeah. thing that you got. Yep. And I mean, at the end, you you were helping me, like saying, "Well, hey, this every time you tuck an asteroid, you're going to get seven or eight points." So you should, you know, and that's of everything you could do. That's and now yeah. that was me just on a raw instinctual level, not actually running any math at all. Yeah. Or you're like, okay, I have to run fifteen quadratic equations. And I didn't even bother with, the math with that. I was just like, you know what? I'm sure he's right on this, <laughs> even though I don't ever trust your math. If I'm right, how come I always lose? I because I, I play my entire game that way. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, so anyway, I, would you what say, I'm saying is, is that the games have changed or is it that my brain has changed? No, yeah, I mean, uh, this this kind of menopausal thing that you have a very concrete thing. I mean, it's proven to you math is, in your head, yes. is literally more of a struggle than it used to be. Yes. And that's not because of external pressures. No. That is, even when your mind is clear, yeah. you just have a harder time juggling all that. I just double and trickle check my math now. Right, I and mean, you didn't used to have to do that. Correct. Do you think uh, so? Do you think that a similar thing like that is going on with uh, not mathematical numbers, but just actual the number of objectives I'm trying to manage, or you know the the free form play, or do you think that you would have you struggled with that just as much six or seven years ago? No, I think I struggle with it more. But I'm wondering if actually games are offering more equal paths, so there's more computating that has to be done to figure out which is the best path. Hmm. I don't know. That's a good question. What uh, do you guys think? Yes. And uh, I'm afraid we got away from your question, but still, that was actually very, very interesting. Okay. And then, oh, we're not done. Oh, what just happened? Why did that just I wasn't holding the control. All right. Well, I just changed the size of the fonts for some reason. <laughs> um, I'm trying to keep them big for people who are watching this on a phone. Anyway, though, personal question for Jen. In a previous podcast, you mentioned that you used to run regularly and even participate in a few races. Or not races. I mean, you weren't racing. They, they were marathons, right? Yeah, Which well, is, it was just a 10K. Yeah, I don't know yeah. what they call called. Uh, perhaps a 5K or even a 10K. Yeah. As a runner, I was thrilled to hear about your experience. Ooh. Would you please share the story of your most memorable race or training run? Ooh. Well, When um, did you actually do marathons? Was that when we were still in Seattle? Marathons is 26 miles. I never did a marathon. Okay, all right, all right. I did 10Ks. But um, a 10K is not a marathon? Um, a marathon is 26 miles. Okay, okay. all right. My mistake. All right. I, and I, that's I just, just off the top this. of my head. Okay. I, I might, it might be some yeah. anyway. thing. In, when you know, were you doing that? In Bend. When was you were, that in Bend? Yeah, when you were very busy spending all your time on Siphonfelter. And you started doing 10Ks. Yeah. I, I don't even think I knew that. Well, I know you went, uh, we went up to Mount Bachelor and there was one 10K race up there that I did. Do you remember that at all? You were there at the finish line and everything. With oh me. my God. Yeah. I have no recollection of that. Yeah, I did pretty good. And the I think probably the reason I remember it is I did a social faux pas in that I started, I just lined up at the front with everybody else. And everybody blew past me, but they had to blow past me because I was slower than them. Oh, so it's just it's just like in these kinds of things where it's this is not a high stakes race. I know your was, know know your lane kind of yeah, thing, exactly. and you did not know your lane. I did not. I was I might have been my first one even. Oh wow! But, so I'm just up there at the front, and and I did you know like a 12 minute mile. It wasn't I was not blazing fast or mm -hmm. anything. Um, but these other people were doing like six minute miles or eight minute miles or whatever. And of course, and it was a it was through the woods and everything. So they had to 
I was in their way. Okay. <laughs> definitely. At my whatever pace I was going. And I'm sure I was doing my best. Uh -huh. But uh, yeah, so that was a little bit embarrassing for me because I was, you know, but how are you going to learn? Mm -hmm. Nobody tells you these things. Mm -hmm. Stand in the back uh -huh. for your first one. Why are all those people in the back, you say, as you just push through the crowd? <laughs> I'm one of those people that sit in the front row anyway when, you know, you, you go to a, a conference or whatever and you want to hear what the person is saying. Mm -hmm. I usually sit in the front row. So I just, I don't know, I guess I just sit, I got in the front of the, the race. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, apparently that was one of your most memorable races. That was definitely very memorable. Yeah, it was good, though. Mm -hmm. I, I did it. But what I remember most about, that I really liked about running was, I think the week after that um, 10K, I had a friend, and she was going to climb up South Sisters with some of her friends. Mm -hmm. And she said, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I'd really like to do that. And she says, well, you know, how fit are you and everything? I was like, well, I just did the 10K at Mount Bachelor, whatever that was last weekend. And she goes, oh, yeah, you'll do it. So I climbed Mount um, South Sister was with them, and oh my God, that was a lot of work. I was mm. really tired, and they just kept encouraging me and saying I could do it. And I know I was slowing them down because they were actually mountain climber people, mm. and I was just a 10k runner. Mm -hmm. But we did eventually all make it up to the top, and that was awesome. So this was all in your late 20s, it sounds. I think that oh, must have been around that time. 30. I was 30 in Bend. Remember celebrating my thirtieth birthday. Okay. Event. Yeah. So right around there, twenty-eight mm -hmm. to thirty-two, or somewhere in there. Ah, yeah. I was unaware any of this was going on because I was too busy burning the midnight oil making video games. Yeah. Right. Any other memorable race or train? Did you do any training? Well, yeah. You train to you you build up your endurance. Mm -hmm. So yeah. You remember I used to run along the canal there, and I would sometimes come in and meet you, and you would ride your bike, and I would run. <gasps> Oh, I do remember that. Oh, yeah, because I would buy... Yes, I remember that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I would... Oh, gosh, I was in such good shape. <laughs> Man, I'd like to be in that good of shape again. Yep. Okay. Okay. Uh, moving on. Kevin says, I watched the Veritasium, Veritasium video on leaded gasoline a while back. It's really changed the way I consume information. Oh. Have you seen the video? What are your thoughts? How do you try to consume information from sources that have biases, either for or against something? And then there is a link to the video. You haven't seen this? Uh, I did watch it. It was very good. We can just pause for a second if you want to watch it. I think if you watch it at double speed, it'll be just like five minutes. Okay, I'm just getting hungry. It's like time for breakfast. All right. So we can pause and have breakfast and watch it. Okay. Okay, we are back. It is uh, many hours later uh, after having watched that video and then having breakfast and then a million other things coming up. But let's continue. Kevin said, Honey Pie. Yes. Uh, from, do you remember the video? I, I know it's been quite a while. No, that was a very cool video. Uh, have you seen the video? What are your thoughts on the video? How do you try to consume information from sources that have biases, either for or against something? So I guess, what are your thoughts on uh, the video for folks who don't know? Is a very good video. You should uh, definitely watch it. About uh, how we got to where we are with lead. You know, basically the story of leaded gasoline and Freon. And how it came about and what it did and what the lasting effects are. But also telling the human story behind it. Which was all very fascinating. Yes. Um, and also provides a cautionary tale that you really can't trust corporations to do with trust <laughs> Because all they care about is money, 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 money. Is that your main takeaway from profit. the video? Profit, 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 profit. Yep. Screw people, screw human life, screw the planet, screw everything. Yep, yep, yep. That is basically, and you can't just trust them to do the right thing. Well, that's money why is you their motive. Need a strong regulatory state. Yep. Uh, <laughs> pretty much. Because we can't look out for ourselves. I mean, there's no way we would ever know that. We yep. would never be able to figure that out. We would just get dumber and dumber because of all the lead that's now in our bodies. Mm -hmm. Yep. Lead 
literally makes you stupider. Yeah. And, uh, and you can't get it out of your body. Mm-hmm. Anyway, go on. Yeah. No, anyway, uh, so those are some good thoughts. <laughs> I, I, I certainly agree. But then uh, Kevin's follow-up question is, how do you try to consume information like this from sources that could potentially have biases, either for or against something? And, you know, you're right, Kevin, that is a tricky thing. You know, I mean, I... You know, I, I, I watch a lot of... This. I'm a subscriber to um, uh, Veritasium and Kyle Hill and Smarter Every Day and a bunch of these types of, hey, look, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're going to give you informative and entertaining information in bite-sized chunks, you know, anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes long on YouTube. Uh, and I love them. Um, Johnny Harris. Uh, you know, and so I watch a lot of these, but I always watch them, including this one, knowing that there is like... There is no vetting process. It's not like this was put out by the BBC yeah. that would make me feel a lot more comfortable. I watch this saying, you know what? This is probably 85%, 95% true. And there might be some biases here and there. Like Johnny Harris. I, I think he's an absolutely phenomenal uh, travel reporter. And he does really engaging and entertaining uh, and important deep dives into a wide variety of subjects. But recently I've seen a couple. <coughs> I don't know how I got fed them in the algorithm. Uh, you know, Johnny Harris completely blew it on this and completely blew it on that. And, and you know, and it's like they're, you know, if, if you actually take the time to study, it's like, okay, yeah, the the overall arc of what he was trying to say is spot on. But it's kind of like, you know, movies inspired by true events. You know, <laughs> look, you know what? That whole thing there, I'm just going to ignore that and simplify it down into just this one little thing right here. And it's like, that's a major part of the story that you're just kind of hand-waving away. And so I... And I know that's possible for all of these things, Kirk Scott, and I don't know how to say that particular channel. So, I mean, it is nice. Like, I know Veritasium, uh, you know, he cites all of his sources. A lot of these uh, channels don't, but many of them do, so that's useful. And, you know, certainly another useful thing is to try to look through the uh, comments, because if there's somebody who actually watched this because, hey, it's their livelihood, and they know about it, and they scroll down and say, well, well you know, that's total crap. You know, but it's kind of hard, I mean, to find that kind of stuff. Like, really popular channels like this, there are like 40,000 comments. I can't look through them all to find, you know... AI. Uh, Have AI search for. There you go, ChatGPT. Uh, <laughs> that is something I think... Uh, ChatGPT, I would love to be able to... Once ChatGPT and its ilk are reliable, which they're not yet. But, I mean, that's another... <laughs> that's a great example of, you know... A you know, a, a, you know, not a universe-changing thing, but you know, a significant change in the way that I interact with. If if it can get to the point where I can relatively rely on that, and I I imagine we will get there, then yeah, I would totally want to you know, hey, you know, give me a report or give me a rebuttal on what was said in here. You know, uh, you know, take the opposite side. I would, I mean, I would love to be able to do that and give your sources and, because and, and, otherwise and source. you think it's like seven fingers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, you know, Bing is actually really good. Bing uh, introduced ChatGPT into Bing searches, and it actually mm. does cite sources, Ooh, that's which cool. is much nicer than the Google one Bard or. Uh, so I mean, that, that's a that's a good next step. So you know, until AI is reliable. Uh, and we, you know, and I mean, can it be reliable? It's driven by the gestalt of everything's been said everywhere, right? But I guess if it's everything on one side or the other, then maybe it'll find a middle ground. I mean, at the end of the day, there's no easy way to do it. I mean, you have to trust your sources. There are certainly, I mean, for not not for stuff like this, but for like major news, there are definitely outlets. I get advertised them all the time on the Majority Report and some other political channels I, I watch that say, look, uh, don't trust us. 
go to, I can't remember the name of it, go to this, subscribe to this service, and it will give you the full um, you know, range of opinions on both sides of any topic you want. But life is too short, quite frankly, and I'm not that worried about it. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fair thing, and I don't really have a good way, I don't think it's something you deal with at all, because you don't watch videos like this on YouTube. No, I don't. No? I'm busy watching videos about lamp working. And, glass. And you can see the glass melting, so you're fairly confident that it's an objective... Yeah. Uh, non-biased glass <laughs> melting. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, though, uh, Kevin then continued, what are your thoughts about uh, GMOs, genetically modified organisms, or really, a, you know, genetically modified food, and the bioengineering label that has been put on, that has to be put on foods? Uh, you know, Kevin knows that I personally am waiting for that cultured meat, that lab-grown meat, which is bioengineering on an entirely different level. To GMOs, but is this another instance of corporations trying to push an agenda? Well, yes, the agenda is profit, profit, money, 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 money. There is no other agenda. There, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, all instances of everything corporations do. That is literally the. I mean, corporations are a modern invention. They were only invented uh, like a hundred years ago. Yeah, or you know, yeah, within with the last couple hundred years. Uh, in, I think hundred years it the, ago. Was it, I think it's the Dutch East India Trading Company oh. is the world's first corporation. Oh, um, you know, so I it's look at that, but yeah, I don't know. it's it's not that long ago. I think you know, about a hundred years ago is when though they became um, entities mm. and recognized and had their own. The, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's different like around the people. world. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, well, in America. So, uh, um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, the the. the, the the ins it, it's not another instance of corporations trying to push an agenda. It's an instance of corporations just doing what corporations are created to do: create profit at every um, you know, and, and spare no expense to do it. Nothing else matters besides profit. Now, I suppose there's a couple of corporations that are there to to benefit. Like REI used to give money back to the planet, and there's a couple other ones where well, so there's donations. Let me made. add to that. Yeah, corporations are run by people, and people by and large are inherently not evil. Yes. A group of people can become evil. Individual evil people are few and far between. Mm, so a goodness. large group of people with good intentions can do evil. That's the most common form of evil you're going to get, as opposed to, you know, I mean, yeah, there are Hitlers out there. But th those are the exception to the rule when it comes to humanity. And so, I mean, I don't, I mean, when I say the corporations serve one purpose, which is to turn profit, that doesn't mean they have to be evil in how they go about doing it. But... That is their highest priority. Yep. And because they are not individual people making decisions, but rather hive group minds, yep. group thinks that are actually trying to do that, they need to be heavily regulated all up and down the street. So, um, you know, putting labels on stuff. Yeah, putting labels on your our food is a good freaking thing that, you know, a strong state does. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, ma making knowing that them. it's got canola oil in it or... Or whatever it might be. Yeah. And, you know, knowing whether it's GMOs. Now, personally, I don't know enough about GMOs. I mean, I know there's a lot of people that are worried. As I understand it, the science is still out. There's no definitive proof that there's fundamentally anything wrong with it. Of course, humanity has been doing GMOs much longer than we've known about, uh, you know, Crick and Watson crack the DNA string. I mean, we've been GMOing for 10,000 years. Yep. Just I mean, with pollinating by hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... 
You think that apple you're eating is natural? That is not natural. That is an abomination. Bananas can't live on their own. They can only live because of us. Because they are so hugely genetically modified long before we ever started working on a gene level. So this is just the latest iteration of us finding better and better ways. And, you know, and certainly there are wonderful things about GMOs. Most importantly, creating you know, drought-specific or resistant crops that feed millions of people. Millions and millions and millions, uncold millions of people would have died of starvation if GMOs hadn't come along and you know solved <laughs> fundamental problems. So there's good and bad that can come out of things. I don't know what the uh, final state is. I tend to trust science, but uh, I guess I tend to uh, trust but verify, and that's where a regulatory state comes in, where you have people whose sole job is to represent you and me, Kevin, um, looking over the shoulder of people whose sole job is to make money and ensure they're doing it not at our expense. So yeah. I guess that's kind of where I come down on that. I don't know if you... No, that seems pretty good. I mean, do you know more about GMOs than me? I mean, you raise plants and stuff. Yeah, not, but, not no. exceptionally. I yeah, I, 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 I need some more Veritasium uh, videos that I may or may not be able to trust to uh, really know the full GMO story. Okay, so that was it, folks. But Jen has her monthly words of wisdom. Uh, hit us, honey pie. Ooh, I love this because oftentimes I do need to wait for the mud, mud to settle. Okay. So here, trying to understand is like straining through muddy water. Be still and allow the mud to settle. And sometimes you do. You just have to let stuff mm. kind of settle and then you come up with whatever the solution is. Okay. That's so, a good one. I like that one. I like that somebody else also does this. <laughs> yep. That's when you're, it's on me, just, just be quiet for five minutes. Yeah. My mud is settling. Yes, I usually I think of it as something actually percolating up. Okay. <laughs> but rather than mud settling and the watering being clear, but you know that's all. That's it, it all it all works. Okay, and then finally, sadly, no doggo pictures this oh, month. Oh man! No, folks, please send those pictures of dogs to questions at rado.com. Look at how sad that frowny face is. <laughs> that is Jen. She's just off screen frowning just that much. Aww. And then finally, uh, we're circling back around because there was a request. I don't. I'm sorry. I don't remember who was who asked about it the follow-up the earlier question was in the final season of ted lasso uh what did we think of rebecca's big speech we've already talked about that spoiler free but that prompted jen to want to say something more about ted lasso and nate so folks we are totally spoiling the heck we're we're, we're speaking without with just dis, totally disregarding your potentially not knowing if in case you might want to know so uh, if uh, you don't want to have any spoilers, get out now! Get out, get out, get out in 5, 4, 3, 2, 3, 2, 3, <coughs> 2, 1. Honey Pie, what did you want to say about Nate and the final season of Ted Lasso? Well, I just thought that he had an absolutely incredible character development arc. And okay. I loved how he started as a very humble person, enjoying what he was doing. Oh, you're talking about for the whole show? Yeah. For, okay, yeah, not just the last season. Yes, yes, okay. Yep. Um, and how he kind of grew through the season with us. And he actually became, you know, a, a, a head coach. And mm -hmm. all of the glories and the perks that come along with that, including a lot of stuff that's shoved down our throats as being the epitome of what you're striving for. Oh, success, yeah. Yeah. And I loved that he chose what he knew was right for him, which was, you know, his girlfriend getting out of a high-stress job that was full of all sorts of traps and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and problems. And returning to what was making him happy. His music made him happy. Um, just being involved with... Uh, Good food, for example, or for with his friends back at the club, mm -hmm. um, and that he got forgiveness from Ted, and Ted never actually 
was mean about him at all, ever. Mm. He was always very forgiving and kind towards him. Yep. And and that he returned, and he is a very happy person now, and he didn't let his ego get in the way. Or, and he didn't of his buy, happiness, yeah. Yeah, and he didn't buy what society sells as happiness. He realized what was important, and he stuck with that. And I just thought that was really, really a wonderful thing to show. Awesome. All right. Well, now you don't need to watch Ted Lasso, folks, but I still recommend it anyway if you haven't. In spite of the fact that it is set against the backdrop of sports, but it's not about sports at all. It's about everything that Jen, Jen just talked about. Yep. Okay, folks, we are out of here once again. Thank you uh, for the questions, but your work is just beginning. We get to rest. Well, Jen gets to rest. I now have to spend who knows how long editing all this stuff together. But uh, you need to start thinking of some more <laughs> questions. Send at questions at rado.com, and we'll be back again next month. Uh, thanks, as always, uh, folks, for supporting the show. And also, in closing, thank you very much to Elf Creek Games for literally sponsoring the show. Aww. Have a nice day, everybody. Talk to you later. So long. And bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.